Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. It's your bitch, Christy Oxborough, and with me, as always, the wind beneath my wings, the Indiana to my Jones. Lauren Ash, how you doing? I'm fucking great, man. <laughs> great, man. <laughs> you know what it is? It's the hair. It's it is. brought out a whole new vibe in me. I like it. Yeah. Uh, for those who are listening and not watching, I've dyed my hair pink. I'm yeah. living a lifelong dream of uh, my teenage dream. I always wanted to have either light purple or light pink hair. Truthfully, I wanted to have light purple hair. But then Kelly Osborne has done it for so long now. I feel like that's her signature look. Sure. And I was like, you know, cotton candy pink is still in the wheelhouse. It's very close. And I, I got to tell you, I got this color put on. Looked at myself in the mirror and honestly almost wept. I was like, I've never felt more like me. And I know that sounds insane, but it's just the truth. It's not. I think that's great. Thank you. I love to see that for you. Thank you so much. That's great. Yeah. Oh, this is exciting. But I feel like it's bringing out this whole other vibe in me. You know what I mean? Like, I just yes. feel like I feel like a rock and roll. I feel like I'm like too blessed to be stressed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Too blessed to be stressed. I love it. I love the energy. I love the vibe. It suits you. Thank you the so much. The vibe and the hair. I'll take it. I really do think it suits me. I was like, I just feel like my eyes yeah. pop. I feel like I look like a candy cane dream or a, a cotton candy dream rather. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and I know work-wise. Yeah. Like it's gonna, you're gonna have to go back. I am. But then I'm like, when there's downtime, are you going to go back to this? Are you going to try another color? Next color. Peach. 
<laughs> it's, it's I'm not laughing at the color choice. I'm laughing at the the verbiage. Thank not you. even the verbiage. I'm laughing at the 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 way it came out. The, the delivery. delivery. There we go. The delivery. Yeah. I uh because you know that's one of my favorite things you do. I love the over enunciating uh Liam Anderson. Uh yes. and I love when you do like a pause and, and it's just the tone. I, I it's the vibe I love in that moment where it's just a a peach. Like that <laughs> that kills me. It's I just one of my favorite like things. A Haley Williams from Paramore, you know, she always was in more hey. of the orange vibe, but then I feel like sure. she had sometimes where it was like a lighter peachy color, and I feel like I could really pull that off. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm loving this for you. But and I say don't let Osborne take a dream from you. Yeah, that's true. I could She's been doing too. it for so long. It's time for someone else. She's been doing it for up. so long. I'm also just like, how do you keep that up? I mean, she must be getting her color done, you know, once a week at, at least. Good God. I, I I mean, to keep it that vibrant? Yeah. I think. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I've never dyed my hair. I Always know. wanted to. But now at this point, I'm just, I'm so frightened because now I've gone so far that I'm terrified. What's it going to look like once it's out? Because well, my hair, I just feel like my hair is not going to look exactly the same. Ever again? Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm terrified. I mean, if you it's did a I'm rinse at. that washes out, then it would look the same again. Sure. But if you did like a permanent color, I know that is that is an odd thing. But I will remind you that in high school, you were hell-bent on dyeing your hair black. <gasps> yes, that is true. Uh, that is because I grew up in an era if I yep. may, yep. Uh, where uh, children with bright, bright red hair were mocked mercilessly because it was like horrifying. It's like, who has red hair? And there was not a lot of us. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, around, around the time, like high school for sure, I was like, I want to I dye my hair the color of my soul, which was black because I thought – Oh, I thought there was so much darkness in me at that point. Right. There really wasn't. But then I then I got old enough where I could make my own choices on if I was going to dye my hair or not. Right. And then I got to, I hit 19 and I went to a bar for the first time and learned those boys that used to tease you for red hair are really drawn to it. Like moths. To the flame. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I, I'm i almost ashamed to say, that was my reason for keeping it all these years. Why are you ashamed? Absolutely yeah. not. I think that that's, I get it. Because it this your red signature. hair brings all the boys to the yard and they're like, <laughs> no, I don't even know what that was. I mean, yeah. my hair is the color of a strawberry milkshake right now. So that's hey. why I, I really uh, resonate with that. Um, like that. Yeah, I don't think there's anything shameful in that. I think you were owning it, is the point. Yeah. You owned it. You were like, oh. Yeah. And then it started to slowly go white underneath. Like but we skipped like gray blonde. and we jumped. It looks blonde. From afar, it definitely looks yeah. blonde. Um, so I don't hate it, but it means I can't really put my hair up or else it's just awkward, like skunk streakage, uh, which is annoying. 
uh, and I find that I prefer my hair shorter, I'm just still waiting for the day I find a a hairdresser that will look at me and go, I know what to do, and they put give me the perfect haircut. I I need Tyra Banks. I need Tyra Banks to be like, this is what I would do for you. Yeah. And so that I can have something that I am not annoyed with most I of get the time. That. I but, get that. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Maybe someday I'll I'll get bold and be like, I should uh, dye my hair a fun color. Yeah. I Listen. don't know if I'll ever be that bold. Oh, I think that you're bold in many ways that are more true to you. I'm more willing to try a different dipping sauce <laughs> than I am Can to try Can you think a of a wild color. dipping sauce that you've tried? Something that was like maybe out of your wheelhouse or that felt a little a little like a naughty? A little, oh, a little risque? A little a risque. Oh, a risque dipping sauce. Because um, we'll put anything in a honey mustard, dear listeners. Like we will. If we've we've committed to honey mustard, and I'll put an egg. I'll yeah. put an egg roll in there. I don't give a shit. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah, yeah, my yeah. issue is we McDonald's up here in uh, Canada used to have honey mustard, and then they swapped it out for the hot mustard. Yeah. I will still eat the hot mustard, but yep. I'll complain about it and reminisce about honey mustard the whole time. Um. Oh, God. I don't know if I've even really had a risque. Oh, God. I've had like a sweet chili, maybe a honey dill. I'll tell you the most risque thing I've done, dipping sauce-wise. Oh, I can't wait. Corn dog. Yeah. Cocktail sauce. Interesting. Now, cocktail sauce traditionally, ketchup and horseradish. Sure. Right? Uh, It's simple. It's to the point. Sure. It packs a punch. It does. For some reason, cocktail sauce with like the batter of a corn dog, my mouth is watering. It works. I can't explain it. I like it. that. I like that. But you could put a cocktail sauce on like a breaded shrimp, and that's not weird. So that is very this true. Is just This is just substituting, you know, wiener for shrimp. Sure. I also like that the term wiener has come out, not for. <laughs> The way I it's would normally say it. It's been a while since it. we've said wiener on the show, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> I need a counter in the back that's like, oh, I got to rip it down. And it's zero days <laughs> or zero episodes since we've mentioned wiener. <laughs> it's just yeah. one of those words that couldn't be better. Yeah. For me, I love the word wiener. I get that. That's why Anthony <laughs> sure. Wiener, when there was that whole scandal, I was like, of course there is. Because his name is Wiener. Like, he just, he had this coming. It just is what it is. (laughs) And to anyone who's listening with the name Wiener, I'm not saying you deserve it. I'm saying the bad man with the last name, Wiener, deserves it. You know? Sure. I hope that the the other Wieners in the world could also laugh at that Wiener. You know? I hope so. I'm just trying to see how many times I can say Wiener. I like it a lot. We should have a Wiener counter at some point. (laughs) If If I was better at, like, electronical things. Electronical. Wow. Uh, If I was better at like technological things, I would have photoshopped like a wiener counter. Ding. You know, yeah. Like they do on guys' grocery games. You love that show. I do. We've talked about that. Well, I need to rip down the thing this many episodes that we talked about (laughs) guys' grocery games. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't uh, talked about it in a while, but I do love that show. Nothing. uh, I mean, I either. Two things have to be occurring while I'm watching it. Yeah. Either A, eating the whole time. Sure. 
The whole time. The whole like it, time. The whole time. Uh, it has to be because everything they make, it's like, oh, that looks so good. And so I have to ha- be slowly snacking on something. Or two, I have to be uh, making something myself. Yeah. It doesn't, it's never the same thing that they're doing. Sure. But I have often thought, God, I'd love one of those challenges. I need a little more time, <laughs> but I would like to have the challenge because I like the idea. See, you have to make this, but you can only use this or you can't use that. I like the idea of the challenge. Right. But I would need more time to like think it through because I am not a professional chef. Where are you no. on Thousand Island dressing as a dip? Um, I would, maybe. I don't know when the last time was I ever had it. I will say this. Is it not basically the same sauce that's on a Big Mac? Yeah. Have I ever told you? Have I ever confessed to you in in this confessional booth that is our show? Yep. Oh, God, I feel like I'm going to get a lot of heat for this. I've never had a Big Mac. I'm 41 years old, and I've never had a Big Mac. Since birth. Yeah. And if there's anything that we share Mm -hmm. a love of, it is patron saint Ronald McDonald and his franchises. Yep. I am Mm -hmm. truly, to the core of my being, shook. (laughs) I'm so sorry. The joke is, I normally say shit like this to my husband all the time, and he just goes, huh. I said to him the other day, oh, you know, I've never had a Big Mac. And he went, really? You? Because I, again, one, obsessed with McDonald's. Two, cheeseburgers are my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. It just is what it is. Um, But yeah, I've never had one. And I thought about it briefly years ago. This shows how long it was. I was... Uh, briefly dating a gentleman. He was a real ass, by the way. Yeah. Um. So it didn't last, thank God. But uh, he was obsessed with Big Macs were his thing. Yeah. And so, but I didn't want to try one because I didn't want him to think I was only having it because it was his thing. Right. And so then I just never bothered. And then after that, I, I get scared to try new things. I'm going to tell you this. Between now and our next record, sure. I will have consumed a Big Mac. I'm writing it down. I Big Mac. think we may need to record that for the show. I think that maybe that's got to be something yeah. we put on a Patreon episode because <laughs> I feel like I want to witness it. Yeah. What now, they I are pickle heavy. Do. So you, and I know you don't oh, love a pickle. Oh, I don't. I don't. Get it I, usually, I usually get mine without pickles. Yeah, my. Uh, but the Big Mac sauce does have relish in it. Uh, see, I think, I, I think I'm it a, works. It's not as it's not overpowering. I just what I hate is biting in, and then you got the pickle, and I'm just like, and then it's like this rubbery thing sticking out of your face. I'm not interested. Yeah, get ask someone without pickles, and you're gonna. I don't think you're gonna hate it. Okay, I'm writing it down. I, I'm not kidding that I really do want to witness it, though. Of course, of course. Um, well, the, here's the joke. This is why you and I have said for a very long time we would like. The challenge that is the documentary Supersize Me. We yep. would like yep. to go 30 days where we eat <laughs> yep. nothing but McDonald's. Yep. Uh, because there are probably so many things that I've never tried from there. 
because and I'm a find that... something you like and you stick with it. Yep. Out you of ever fear. Ever had a fillet of fish? I have not. Christy Lynn. <laughs> oh, the middle I name. Don't even know what to say. I'm Will writing. you eat a, a breaded fish? Yes. Actually, I, uh, the husband and I got, uh, uh, battered fish and chips for lunch today. How is this possible? Here's the thing about the filet of fish. It's got the softest bun. That bun is so soft, it doesn't make sense. It's not the rest of the buns. It's the only burger, it's the only sandwich, excuse moi, that McDonald's serves on that bun. Oh, Christy. Oh, God. Will you eat a tartar sauce? Yes. Oh, my God. You had... Okay, this is... I, my mind is blown. You shook me once, shame on me. Shook me twice, shame on you. No, other way around. Okay, you'll love this. Well, okay, I've written down Big Mac and filet of fish Do I need to go back on my between now and the next record and push it and be like, the next time we are in person together... Yes. I promise... I will order both of those items. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because there will be drinking the next time we're together, and that means there'll be McDonald's. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So please don't expect an update next week, because I will not yes. see her between now and the next record. We're but jamming this out in the moment, folks. We're just jamming. Yeah. We're finding it. <laughs> too blessed yeah. to be stressed too blessed to be stressed oh also i think there's also something to be said for the vibal change vibal mm. i like that uh i just keep inventing words today for whatever reason yeah uh it's because i'm in it's because i'm driving the bus and i'm like fuck it who's gonna stop me the answer is no one nobody not that you would ever stop me regardless but um i think it's also because the first episode of this year which yeah. we recorded last week Early in the day. Yep. So early. Yep. This one, so late. Late. <laughs> late, late, late. So it's a, it's a, there is a, a viable change. There yes. I would name a band Viable Change. I'm writing that down. <laughs> viable Change. Yeah. I'm like not that. coordinated enough. But I think if I, I think I, I, I think if I had to pick, I'd like to be the drummer. Wow. Ah, it's just because of my crush on Kurt Dahl from Age of Electric. Shout out Age of Electric. Shout out Kurt Dahl. I'm so sorry I screamed and emitted no other sounds when we met via Zoom. Yeah. You did great. <laughs> I, I just kept screaming, no, no, and just yep. screaming. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. it is what it is. It's too blessed to be stressed. Yep. <laughs> Ever so coolly. Yeah. yeah. Turn on the thing. It's been how many episodes since we've heard oh, that I one? Like that. Oh my God. I need to I need to print out a full McDonald's menu. And circle. Give it a little check. A little highlight. Things, figure out what have what's on that menu that I've never had. You'll dear listeners, just know this. She'll have that done by tomorrow. That I know. That part. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because I'm going to need, I'm going to need hot. Uh, I know that there are, are currently spicy nugs. I've never tried those. They are not oh. down here anymore. Oh, They're good. I like them. 
Okay. See, I do have concern about combining a spicy with a hot mustard. I Just used ranch. Oh, a cooling agent, of yep. course. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. There's going to end up being... Yeah, fuck. Ne I've never had a McChicken. I don't <laughs> even know. I don't even understand it. Every you time. Every time that I've had McDonald's since my youth, when I was a child, it was always nuggets. Always nuggets. You also... And then I just double quarter pounder. And then you, I've had cheeseburgers, of course. But you also reacted when I wanted a double cheeseburger. You ha you haven't had one of those. I had not at the time until you brought one into my life. Look, what it's going like a big McDonald's order. <laughs> <laughs> the bag is going to be obscene and I can't wait to see it. Yeah. It's going to have to happen. Yeah. Love okay. to see that for you. All right. Uh, look, I, I'm living for it. I'm just writing down menu. What have I not had? Yep. With a big question mark. And, uh, oh, well, that's my homework for the next episode. That I'll give you. I like that. The, the taste. Uh, I won't. Um, but what I'm also going to give you is enough of this chit chat. First off. Before I forget, I'm going to ask you what you're drinking over there. I got a Diet Coke and a water. Nice. That's it. How about Lame -o you? lame over here. Just a water. Hey. Water's not lame, kids. Keep hydrating. Hydrating. Hydrated. Um, I also, oh, forgive me. Uh, I'm so sorry, dear listener. I, I don't remember your name, but somebody did mention, um, I believe it was the Facebook group the other day, that... Uh, they had not had a Slurpee in about 15 years. Yeah. And after listening to the show and how often I brought them up, they went back and now they get one almost daily. <laughs> I love to see that for them. And yes. also, 7-Eleven. Yeah. What are you doing? You're sleeping on your... I mean, our girl here is doing the work. For She's spending sakes. the cash. She's bringing people over to the, to the, to the good book <laughs> of 7-Eleven. Yeah. Send her yeah, some I coops. like that. Send her some coops. Oh, my God. And that's the joke. I'm not even asking for the moon here. No, we're asking not. for some coupons. That's it. I, like, it's just, I'm there almost daily. Yeah. Like, today is Wednesday. I've been there every day this week. Yeah. And I thought, maybe tomorrow I don't. And the, jo the joke is, I just don't have time because I have a very, very busy... I have to be in two places at one time. I have not figured out how. I'll figure it out. Um, but my point is, uh, I just might not have time tomorrow. But if you think that doesn't mean I'm going to make up for it by going Friday. Yeah. And maybe again Saturday. You're dead wrong. Hey. You're dead wrong. Life's short. Drink yeah. the Slurpees. Right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and dear listener, I, uh, I'm going to look on the break so I can make sure to give you a proper shout out. That's nice. Cause, uh, I should have been prepared for this. I wasn't planning on bringing it up because see, this is what you get. We're vibing. With, We're with finding chocolates. it in the moment. We don't know. We barely have a script except for this, you know, research, but we barely have a script. Yeah. Oh, the only thing I have to read is I wrote, literally wrote down. 
what's up, everybody, to remember what to say. Uh, and then what's what you're drinking, so I remember to ask you. And then I've got this synopsis I'm going to read. Other than that, we're just freeballing it. Freeballing it. Maybe it's not for the best. <laughs> it's uh, We're like great. this when it's either early or late. Yep. Or in the middle so times. I'm starting to think maybe we can't blame the time. I don't think the time has anything to do with it. <laughs> What's oh. time got to do, got to do so, with it? So what you're saying is, this is just our personalities. Correct. I think we're just coming into our own. I love it. Whereas love we're just it. like, this is what it is. This is who we are. Yep. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. And my apologies for not having had more yeah. of the McDonald's menu. No need, because guess what? Now we get to do it together, and that's a gift to me. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait for a taste test. Oh, God, I'm going to have to rate them. Yep. That gets me hot. <laughs> Don't worry. Note. Don't worry, folks. I, I'm well aware of my mental illnesses. Yep. So, Same. Today's episode is about conscious development hey no and i'll be honest i don't know a damn thing hey so this is gonna be a fun ride for all of us i guarantee love it so what i am told terry hoffman led what in the early 70s was dallas's foremost metaphysical study group something she called conscious development five times married terry caught a mix of eastern and western philosophies or taught a mix of Eastern and Western philosophies, rather, with a commonsensical emphasis on balance and perspective. But from 1977 to 1989, 11 of her followers met seemingly untimely ends. Six suicides, three accidents, one murder, and one unexplained disappearance. And the majority of them made Terry Hoffman their sole beneficiary shortly before their deaths. So was Terry Hoffman really a spiritual spiritual guru who could communicate with spirit guides that were fighting a seemingly never-ending battle against so-called dark lords? Or was she simply a charlatan, thank you for that, yep. who plied her most devoted de followers with mysterious white pills before convincing them that their deaths would be better than their lives? Lauren Ash investigates. Thanks, Christy. <laughs> I just really wanted to say that. I like it a lot. Oh, now I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, I've got a lot here. We're in we're in old school Lauren Ash territory where my notes are too long, and this is going to be lengthy. So I'm going to try and blow through these as quickly as I possibly can. Sure. Because let me tell you, this one goes deep, and I don't need to tell you uh, that when there's 11 victims, yeah, it's a lot of info. Yeah, I bet. A lot of info. Okay. So before we get started, trigger warning, there will be mentions of suicide and substance use. Trigger warning if you need them. Terry Lee Hoffman was born March 21st, 1938 in Fort Stockton, Fort Stockton, Texas. Her family has been described as dirt poor. A sister of hers had been stillborn and her mother was dying of tuberculosis. All I could find out about her father was that he was an alcoholic. That's it. Sure. Terry was only three and a half years old when she said that three men in robes first appeared to her in a vision. She called them the masters. They would come periodically, she later explained, not all the time, and not all of the time when I wanted them to. 
They taught her about her special abilities, that through God and meditation she could do anything if she wanted it badly enough. They also told her that when she was troubled, she should always talk to God. And they warned her that they could not be seen by many other people. So who are these masters exactly? Well, I'll tell you. They were 12 wise spirit guides, including Jesus Christ, who periodically appeared on earth to offer counsel to the devout. Unlike most people, Terry could see and hear them. There's also one named Marcus, which always makes me think of the superstar store care Marcus, character Marcus. <laughs> Shout out John Barinholtz, but I digress. Oh, that's nice. So it seems that Terry's mother died when Terry was nine, and I guess her father was either also dead by then or just unable or unwilling to parent because Terry was sent to a Lutheran orphanage in Round Rock at that point. It was around that time her visions appeared to her again, and she says it was at that point that she learned that she was the reincarnation of St. Teresa of Avila, who was a 16th century Spanish nun. St. Teresa of Avila was one of the Catholic Church's most flamboyant mystics who experienced visions from the three people of the Holy Trinity and believed that the kingdom of heaven could be visited like rooms in a castle. That's the way this was described. After two years at Round Rock at age 11... Terry was adopted by a Dallas couple who had lost their natural daughter to tuberculosis. I don't know if they had heard the story of Terry's mom dying to tuberculosis and that drew them to her. No sure. idea. Either way, a Dallas oil company clerk and his wife adopted Terry and renamed her Terry Lee Benson. She went to live with them in the first normal home she had known since her birth in 1938. However, she only remained with that new family for four years. A month after she turned 15, when she was a junior in high school, she ran away to get married. She met a young truck driver named John Wilder, who was 18 years old, six foot one, and a high school dropout who was earning 85 cents an hour. Her new mother called him, her word not mine, a thug, saying he was not good enough for Terry. But Terry felt smothered by her adoptive mother's attentions, so went and married him on May 2nd, 1953 in Durant, or du yeah, I think Durant, Oklahoma, which was the closest place to Dallas that a 15-year-old could get married. However, another source that I found said that they each fudged their ages by three years, making her 18 and him 21. I don't know which of those stories is true, or maybe it's both, but I just report what I find. Of course. So, not long after, they returned to Dallas, where Terry dropped out of high school, and then 18 months later, her first daughter, Kathy, was born in 1954, then Kenneth, a son, in 1958, and a daughter, Virginia, in 1963. They lived on a farm in South Dallas County. John supported the family by driving rigs while Terry stayed home with the children. It was around the time of Kathy's birth in 1954 that Terry began to dabble in the occult. She started meeting with a group of like-minded friends, meditating and discussing metaphysics, um, the nature of existence, the meaning of it all, etc. At first, she was just chatting with those friends, reading a mail-order book she had gotten on hypnotism. She read the writings of psychic Edgar Case or Casey, but then Terry began taking classes in hypnosis. Oh, among other things. By the late 60s, she and John had moved their family to North Dallas, and she was leading weekly evening meditation classes. She started a new group called Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul, and she taught from written lessons that she prepared herself and offered for sale. First degree lesson one begins as follows, quote, This is your very first lesson. It is yours in a special way, since the knowledge contained within it is sacred, secret, and mysterious. This information has been treasured and carefully guarded since ancient times, for knowledge gives its possessor power. 
By being exposed to the teachings of the masters, you will not only become aware of the truths which others rarely possess, you will also learn how to use and control energies few have mastered. So to that I say, starting out hot. Yeah, that's level one. Wow. Lesson one, okay. So Terry taught that behavior on earth, or as she called it, the physical realm, would offer prospects for reincarnation into a higher spiritual realm. Sure. So the other concept that she was really fixated on was that if you were experiencing misfortune uh, now in the physical realm, that's because you're going through the consequences of bad things you've done in your previous lives. Um, in short, kind of getting what you deserved. The worst one behaves in a past life, the worst condemnation in the next life. Um, perhaps you would get reincarnated as a rat or a cockroach if you were a really bad person. And this is obviously kind of a, an extension of the Hindu law of karma, the notion of cause and effect. But it's, sure. again, we're, we're, there's a lot more nuance uh, to, to that, obviously. So in her world, the line between life and death was meaningless. She said, you will also become conscious of the continuity of life. Death, then, will not exist in reality, for you will realize that your existence is not dependent upon the mere maintenance of your physical body. After all, she wrote, the result of noble death is rebirth. Great. She believed it was essential for an individual to strive for balance, which is a state of equilibrium between your physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual bodies, as she called them. Critical thoughts, she called negative energies, uh, she said they could be draining and even deadly. For example, she believed that if you had a fear of cancer, then that could actually cause you to get cancer. Oh. Um, to her, life's ultimate goal was to become highly evolved enough to share the loftiest spiritual plane with God and the masters during the next incarnation. So this required intense commitment to her teachings. And she said that if you want to reach the highest realms, you'll need to work to develop the latent power of your emotions, mind, and soul. So sorry. <coughs> My God. <coughs> Everything's great. <laughs> Doing great. So the framework of her beliefs borrowed heavily from writings that would inspire the general and popular New Age movement during the 1980s. Her doctrines offered the forgiveness of sin and the reinforcement of pleasure. She told her followers exactly what they wanted to hear at that time, which was, for example, you'll become very wealthy. Or you'll find bliss in every sexual encounter that you have. Kind of the kind of things that would bring people into these kind of teachings, right? Sure. <clears throat> so everyone who attended Terry's meditation classes sat cross-legged on the floor, listening to her speak on everything from sex to personal finance to ghost to ghosts. Then she would get more soft. And she'd have a kind of maternal air. And would lead the group in what some would call a trance-like state. Remember, she did have a past in taking classes in hypnosis. That then, is good to keep in mind. Yep. She would cap off the evening with a round of prayer. She'd also offer individual consultations to people on any subject for an hourly fee. Um, she would advise people on every and any aspect of their lives. As the number of people casually involved in conscious development grew, Terry began having weekly meetings of her inner circle, which was a hand-picked group of her teachers. This is where she revealed that there were members of, sorry, that they were members of something she was calling the White Brotherhood. These people were chosen by the masters to battle the forces of evil. The evil enemies were called Black Lords, and they were part of what she called the sinister Black Brotherhood. And... On behalf of all mankind, conscious development teachers would have to engage the Black Lords 
in combat. So the Black Lords, they exist on an astral and mental plane. So there was instructions that she wrote that were distributed out to the teachers. They were told that to kill one of the Black Lords, they must be taken to the pits of hell where their soul and lower bodies will be dissolved. But deadlier than them were the Black Overlords, since they can't be dissolved in the pits of hell, but must instead be taken to the electromagnetic dissolving cave. But wait, there's more. Then there were the Garbans, or Garbons, I would say Garbans. Uh, These were described as, quote, about six feet tall with a long beak, Garbans have a gargoyle-like appearance and are covered with slime. They've even been known to be able to touch touch someone in the physical realm as to leave slime on the body of their victim. Garbans presented special dangers, and Terry instructed that if after 30 seconds or a minute, you feel a tingling sensation in your hand, or if your hand is shaking, you you should assume that you have a garbin stuck to your hand. Using your imagination, wrap it in barbed wire, stab it, and kill it. Then imagine the dead garbin spinning straight up and dissolving in the universe. Mm. But wait, mm-hmm. there's more. So to challenge the Black Brotherhood, the teachers armed themselves with magic symbols, a rod, a cup, a sword, and a cloth bag containing a cup of dirt. The symbols represented the elements, fire, water, air, and earth. And they gave the teachers twice the power against the Black Lords. Now, the symbols didn't have to be full-sized. So for example, you could use a letter opener or a pen as a sword. She also encouraged everybody to dress for battle in a robe. Uh, A headband with silver or gold symbols was encouraged, and of course, Terry's protective jewelry. Terry claimed that a properly made robe could give them up to 15 times more power in these battles. So, during these private meetings, each teacher sat inside their own magic circle, which was a large circle of cloth that was inscribed with a triangle. The magic circle apparently offered protection to the point that some teachers started to sleep in these. Um, They would also perform a series of protection rituals with their magic symbols. um, And when they would get to these meetings, they would start about going into battle, killing the Black Lords. They would use carefully practiced gestures. Um, The teachers, who were very well-educated people, quite there was a college professor, advertising agency executive, a district uh, school counselor, would begin to slice through the air with their ballpoint pens and their letter openers. Now, there is an extensive article that was written in 1990 called The Curse of the Black Lords. Uh, It was published in Texas Monthly. I pulled a lot of information from that, and I did fact check everything that I found. Um, But I just wanted to read this as the writer of that article, Peter Elkind, described one of these killing sessions. And this is how he described it. Oh, boy. Zap! A Black Lord went spinning down into the pits of hell. Zap! A black overlord was dispatched to the electromagnetic dissolving cave. He goes on to explain that although the fighting was restricted to the spiritual realm, many teachers regarded it as being very real and deadly. Serious injury seems far removed from reality as we sit in the physical in battle, one of the leaders wrote to the group. However, it's to be remembered that last Wednesday, we had to rush to the aid of some of our white brotherhood as they fought. Many of these brothers died on that far-off universe— because they were not as battle-ready as we have been and we will be. 
<clears throat> when Terry suffered a physical ailment, she told her followers it was because she was enduring punishment from the Black Lords on their behalf, and that they just weren't fighting hard enough. Week after week, the teachers would split into separate squads battling the forces of evil. The fighting would go on for hours late into the night. Occasionally, there'd be written updates from Terry's lieutenants that outlined the body counts with a consistently grim prospect. Quote, Our first battle fought took over three hours and dissolved only 242 lords and no overlords. Attacks are becoming frequent and events are more desperate. Our need for help is crucial. Crucial. Mm -hmm. However, they were only to seek aid in these fights from their spiritual allies. And they were all sworn to secrecy. So the information that they were given for their battle purposes was considered sacred, wasn't to be given out or viewed by anyone outside of their teacher's class. The rituals, the equipment uh, the that accompanied the rituals could not be spoken about in front of other people. And as much as possible, the magic equipment had to remain hidden. We see where this is going. Mm -hmm. Terry fostered paranoia. She would say that there are black forces absolutely everywhere. She also... Um, really encouraged self-reinforcing isolation. Anyone who left conscious development was considered particularly suspect. Some would be identified as being possessed and become targets of the teacher's rituals. Stay alert, in all caps, was the written instructions that she advised. Quote, curtail most of your social contact with those outside the group. It's for their protection. The black forces may use them to get to you. Keep your sword near you, especially when you go to bed. Protect your animals, car, place of work, and your home with the protection rituals. Mm -hmm. oh. But turmoil was happening for Terry at home. Her husband, John Wilder, had expressed a growing skepticism about all of her teachings. And on December 28, 1970, Terry filed for divorce, explaining to a friend that her husband was, quote, impeding her spiritual growth. John Wilder, along with Terry's adoptive mother, had her temporarily committed to Parkland Memorial Hospital for a psychiatric examination after persuading a judge that she posed a substantial risk for causing serious harm to herself or others. In their divorce decree, granted on March 23rd, 1971, she did lose custody of her two younger children. Wow. Yes. So, Terry remarried just four months later. That's right. She found a partner who she felt properly revered her powers, a man named Glenn Scott Cooley, who was a student at North Texas State University at the time. Glenn, who had dabbled in drugs, dropped out of school after marrying Terry. She was 33. He was 20. Wow. Somehow I thought that was going to be worse, but okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Terry and Glenn bought a house in North Dallas, and they dove deep into the work of conscious development. They began focusing on revising and expanding the literature together. In addition to her printed lessons and private consultations, she branched out into the jewelry business. That's right. She taught that certain gems and crystals, when properly selected and electrically charged, possessed protective and healing properties. She began urging her followers to buy her handmade silver rings, necklaces, and bracelets. Except the thing was that the more expensive the item was, the more power it magically contained... Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one also could tell how tightly the followers embraced her teachings by counting how many pieces of her jewelry they were wearing. Glenn spent around six years in the conscious development jewelry business. The incorporated name of the business was CD Gems. 
But his middle-class Baptist family never fully approved of his marriage to Terry. His brother described Glenn as searching for, quote, acceptance as he was, not as someone else wanted him to be. And although Terry claimed to have cured him, as we know, Glenn did have issues with drugs and substances in the past, which was a concern for his family. After the battles with the Dark Lords had begun, he allegedly confided to his mother that he had heard enough, and his mother later testified in court, quote, he wanted out of the whole thing, the marriage, the conscious development, everything. Terry and Glenn separated, and on November 24, 1976, she filed for divorce. Glenn agreed to expedite the proceedings. Everything was very amicable. He was still working with Terry in the jewelry business, and the divorce was granted on January 27, 1977. Five days later, Glenn went to spend the night at a cabin his parents owned on Lake Grapevine, northwest of Dallas. The next day, Terry reported discovering a hand-scrawled note from Glenn in her safe. It was titled, Last Will and Testament. It read, I, Glenn Cooley, give to Terry Cooley all of my property, both personal and real. This includes two boats, a 1972 Buick Limited, all jewelry and equipment for its making, all furnishings for the house on Dunhaven Road, and all cash. Signed, Glenn Scott Cooley. It went on. I ask that this last will of mine not be contested by anyone in any way for any reason. Last but not least, I give all my love to all my family and friends. As explanation for all this, I can't really say what it is because of, but I can say what it is not because of. It is not because of divorce with Terry, past drug experiences, inability to cope, etc. What it is, I myself, I myself know, but don't have the words for. Terry told authorities that after finding the note, she met with two Conscious Development followers and drove with them to the cabin where they discovered Glenn's body. Terry's then 26-year-old ex-husband had taken off his shoes, climbed into bed, and he was laying there, foam oozing from his mouth. A half-empty can of Coors sat on the nearby dresser, and two capsules were discovered when the body was moved. A drug screen following his autopsy, autopsy revealed that the, there was a presence of Valium and Librium in his system, the cause of death was listed as a drug overdose. Terry told authorities that Glenn had seemed despondent and had disregarded her advice not to leave for the cabin alone. She said after he departed, she never saw him alive again. Her account of Cooley's death would stand unchallenged for 13 years. However, in February 1989, a former conscious development teacher told investigators a different story. According to this woman, she and Terry went to the cabin the night of February 1st, 1977, when Glenn was still alive. The woman said Terry had told her on the way that Glenn was going to go to the next level. When when they arrived, Glenn, who was still lucid, said he had consumed the fatal drugs. Within the teacher's group, Glenn's death was evidence that the Black Lords were simply making further gains. So Terry announced there was one new defensive strategy. And what was it? <laughs> Obviously bloodletting. Apparently, the Black Lords had the poison to po poison the power to poison blood, so those affected needed to drain their poison. A single syringe full, of course, would do it, but the bloodletting did drive many people out of conscious development altogether. That being said, somebody who didn't turn her back on Terry was one woman named Sandy Cleaver. No one was more devoted to conscious development and Terry than Sandy. She had more than a dozen. CD gems, pieces of jewelry, and she was in it. Raised in Alabama, she was a slender, earnest woman who earned an income from an ample family trust fund. Friends and relatives considered her sheltered and described her as naive. 
Sandy met her husband Chuck at DePauw University, where he was the center on the college basketball team. After graduation in 1960, Chuck took a job with Procter & Gamble in Dallas, and they had a daughter, Susan Devereaux Cleaver, who went by the name Devereaux, uh, who was born in 1964. Sandy was described as spiritually troubled. Her parents had divorced while she was a child, and her mother had spent years in and out of mental hospitals. Her teenage sister had died in a car accident, and in 1966, her father was also killed in a plane crash. These misfortunes uh, sent her on a spiritual quest. She was very into meditation, vegetarianism, homeopathic medicines, and that is what led her eventually to Terry. On April 21st, 1971, one month after Terry's marriage to John Wilder ended, Sandy filed for divorce from Chuck, explaining to him that she and Terry had agreed that he was, quote, blocking her spiritual development. That marked the beginning of a bitter year-long custody battle between she and Chuck. Chuck claimed that Sandy was an unfit mother because of her immersion in Terry's teachings, but part of Chuck's concerns were that Sandy had become convinced that conventional medicine was useless. Sandy refused to allow Chuck to take Devereaux, even when she was sick, to the pediatrician. She instead preferred prayer, incense, and incantations. Sandy also placed her faith in an assortment of unlabeled pills— described by an unlicensed healer in Mexico. How did she find that healer? Obviously, he was recommended by Terry. (coughs) The healer diagnosed Devereaux's condition telepathically and then obviously shipped the bottles of pills to Dallas by bus. At one point, Chuck testified that Sandy was giving five-year-old Devereaux up to 110 pills a day. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Five. Five. Wowza. Chuck Cleaver later testified that he believed he could have won legal custody of his daughter, but he yielded control to Sandy because he feared that with her belief in reincarnation, she would sooner kill Devereaux than permit her to live with him. A judge did make a special provision of the divorce decree that obligated Sandy to take Devereaux only to recognize physicians licensed to practice medicine in Texas. So, free of her husband blocking her spiritual development, Sandy became Terry's full-time unpaid assistant. She began rewriting the Conscious Development Correspondence courses and even dipped into her own pocket to buy the group a printing press. She also helped make jewelry, kept the group's books, and wrote its checks. When Terry legally incorporated Conscious Development in 1974, Sandy was named the Secretary Treasurer. Now, the more involved Sandy became, the less attention she seemed to pay to her daughter Devereaux. Traveling out of town with Terry to sell jewelry, she would leave Devereaux for days at a time in the care of the family's elderly housekeeper, a woman named Louise Watson. Sandy began hosting conscious development meetings at her home in the night and would leave Devereaux with Louise, sometimes until 2 o'clock in the morning. There was also at one point a young conscious development acquaintance who Sandy had taken into her home. Sandy told Chuck, She was protecting their daughter with a psychic shield, so he didn't need to worry about this acquaintance staying in the house. Devereaux would be protected, safe from any harm, except, of course, from Chuck's bad vibrations, which she claimed were making Devereaux sick. Sandy felt certain that what she called, quote, my work, was worth virtually any sacrifice. And by the mid-70s, more than 100 people were attending Conscious Development's weekly lectures held on the SMU, or Southern Methodist University campus, or in a room at North Dallas's First Unitarian Church. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of followers around the country were also receiving Terry's printed lessons. In 
So she and Terry began to speak excitedly about taking conscious development even further nationwide and about building a school to spread their gospel. Sandy felt privileged to work with Terry. They were leading a powerful movement, a holy mission. They were spreading knowledge, peace, and love for the good of all mankind. Now, Terry told Sandy that she believed Sandy was a revelator, which is a huge achievement, as Jesus was, of course, the supreme revelator of all time. And I know what you're thinking. How did Terry know this? Well, obviously, she had seen the Akashic Records. Now, what are the Akashic Records? I'll tell you. They're a psychic library where those who are highly spiritually involved can read the past and future like it's a newspaper. The Akashic Records are said to be encoded in a non-physical plane of existence known as the mental plane. The records are typically accessed through a prayer called the Pathway Prayer. The prayer is a vibrational frequency composed of specific sounds that allow you to access the Akashic Records. While there are no anecdotal, excuse me, while there are anecdotal accounts, it should be noted there is technically no scientific evidence for the existence of the Akashic Records, as they are only available on a spirit realm. So, in June 1977, Sandy had come to Terry for spiritual guidance, along with a man she was dating named Lynn Fairchild. Like several of Terry's followers, Sandy would tape her conversations with Terry so she could study her wisdom between consultations. Even years later, uh, the recording did reveal how completely Terry's followers would immerse themselves into her universe and how she would dominate the minute details of each of their lives. Now, in this meeting, it was Sandy and Lynn's budding personal relationship. Were they destined for one another? Should they make love? Would their involvement with each other interfere with their spiritual development? Alas, Terry explained, Sandy and Lynn were not to be soulmates in this lifetime. She said they were destined in future lives to become lords of separate planets, each with a different partner. While here on Earth, Terry said, Sandy and Lynn were fated to remain, quote, happy single people. Sandy, who was divorced, didn't seem to like this revelation, saying, well, what's the purpose of being a happy single person? Terry explained, quote, to exude energies, to send energies out to others. Getting married or even living together could distract them from their spiritual studies and produce cosmic disturbances. You could wind up with a big bag of worms. No. And I just want to say, it's chilling that a woman who is a possible cult leader also casually used the term bag of worms. (laughs) Now I feel like I'm crazy. Is that a saying? I thought it was can of worms. But alas, here we are. (laughs) oh this is i don't care for it i I don't like it again christy is the only person i've ever heard use the term bag of worms but also terry hoffman so there you go now (laughs) sandy wondered about the boundaries of what her relationship with lynn should be how far could they go do you know the specific things we should do and should not do she asked terry mused for a moment then she said ah I'd like to see what Marcus has to say first. Marcus, you'll remember, of course, not the Superstore character, the master. Suddenly, he came to her. Marcus is here, she said, so I'll just go ahead and see what he has to say. Lynn said, tell him thanks for coming. What a gentleman. So Marcus was blunt. Terry said, quote, he says y'all have been spending an awful lot of time together. He says you're going to have to decide when the fun stops and the work starts. Marcus wanted them to concentrate on spreading, spreading the conscious development gospel. Gospel, He said energies are going to start coming in pretty soon and they're going to change things. 
He says if they don't have conscious development to turn to throughout the country, there's going to be a possibility we could incur karma by not doing it. Meaning, of course, that their next incarnation, they would be punished. Having spoken his piece, Marcus, still unseen to all but Terry, disappeared. By the way, Terry said, there's something that, that I, that we'd like y'all to work on. There could be a big problem in Peru. We'd like you to work on the heads of state to make sure they all don't get killed. Protection, asked Sandy, astounding stunned. Protection, shields, whatever, said Terry. There's only danger for the next three or four weeks. I'm working on it too. We've got to save their lives. Everyone agreed to act. Then Terry closed by counseling a moderation. She said, how are you going to be an example of happy single people if you see each other all the time? I know it. I've seen the records. I've seen your future. Marcus is not saying it should be over. He's saying you've gone overboard. Sandy wondered about her safety from evil forces, but Terry reassured her, I've already worked with your jewelry. I've made it electromagnetic. And I guess that was that. With the group's popularity spreading, Terry designated around 25 of her most devoted followers, including Sandy, as teachers. They would run some of the weekly classes in her place. With this creation of a new tier of leadership, Terry ascended to a status closer to the heavens. Consequently, her followers started calling her the Anatomaji or the Divine Revelator. Terry told Sandy that Terry was able to levitate, that she could heal the sick, even from hundreds of miles away. She described meditations in which she communicated with the Babaji, uh, a legendary Himalayan guru, and another in which she talked to Plato. One conscious development teacher spoke of a time that a plane in which that teacher was a passenger on had clipped a telephone wire and spun out of control. The pilot had narrowly pulled them out. Terry nodded knowingly as she listened to the story. Did you help save us? The teacher asked. Yes, answered Terry. And they all believed her. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, nothing shook Sandy Cleaver's faith in Terry. Not the bloodletting. Not even when Terry began telling Sandy that black forces had infected her daughter, Devereaux. Devereaux was 14 years old in December 1978. She attended the private Greenhill School in North Dallas, where she was a good student and wrote poetry. At five foot nine, she was popular with classmates and an athlete. She was a member of the middle school basketball team and was a powerful swimmer. But Sandy had become fearful of her own daughter. Sandy told her conscious development colleagues that evil spirits, the evil spirits in Devereaux were trying to infect her energies. Devereaux was crushed as her mother started to act distant. Sandy was always going off on trips and leaving her. She seemed to have little interest in Devereaux's achievements and even refused to attend her basketball games. So in early 1979, when Sandy asked Devereaux to join her and Lynn Fairchild on a trip to Hawaii, Devereaux accepted. Lynn and Sandy were going on a pre-wedding trip. I guess they had made tentative plans to get married, married seemingly ignoring Terry's and Marcus's wishes, which seems odd to me, but nonetheless, that's what the research and the timeline say, and I'm just going with it. On February 25th, the three of them stopped to picnic at a lagoon uh, near the Walupe Peninsula, a spot that Terry had previously visited. Terry had previously visited. Hmm. While Lynn remained on shore, Sandy and Devereaux took a blue inflatable raft and paddled out hundreds, excuse me, several hundred yards until they were floating over a coral reef. Suddenly, Sandy said, a wave knocked them off their raft and a second wave drove them apart and underwater. Sandy said she dove for Devereaux, but couldn't find her. 
Rescuers were summoned by Lynn, and they reached Sandy, who was bruised and bleeding as the coral reef was quite sharp. But Devereaux's body was not recovered for hours. Chuck Cleaver learned that his daughter was missing when Terry called his home in Dallas at 1 o'clock in the morning. He left immediately for Hawaii, but arrived to find Terry already in Sandy's hospital room. While Chuck was gone, one of Terry's followers called his home to serve notice that she had a document he needed to see. A family friend went to pick it up. It was Devereaux's will. Addressed to Terry and Ben Johnson, Terry's then third husband, the handwritten letter stated who was to get her rock collection, her basketball, and to who she left all of her money, as Devereaux had a $125,000 trust fund. It was to be left to the conscious development school, quote-unquote, that Terry and her mother had planned. Didn't exist yet, but was planned. That same day, a woman marched up to the desk of the bank vice president who managed Devereaux's trust fund and announced that she was here to deliver Devereaux's will. The woman handed, handed the banker a pair of documents, one, the handwritten letter to Terry and Ben, and a second, a very formal will, which was clearly not written by a 14-year-old, which was dated the previous August. It stated, quote, I give, devise, and bequeath all of my property, including all rights, titles, and interests of whatever character I may own in and to any property, real, personal, or mixed, wherever situated, to Terry Johnson, who has been like a second mother to me. Much like Glenn Cooley's will, it should be noted that Devereaux's will specifically then asked that the will not be challenged. However, these two documents were invalid because minors can't legally write a will in Texas. But also, how many teenagers think to compose a will? Yeah. My, my The thing I wrote down was what 13-year-old, because she supposed that they wrote it the year before, uh, ever uses the word or knows the word bequeath. Bequeath. Yeah. Thank you very much. So this shocked Devereaux's father, Chuck, who says that Devereaux's contact with Terry was quite limited. Not the second mother, as it may have sounded. And Chuck believed that his daughter must have drafted the documents at her mother Sandy's request because she was desperate for her mother's acceptance. Chuck Mm. also began to entertain a truly horrifying thought that Sandy, deep under Terry's influence, certain that Devereaux was possessed by demons, murdered her own daughter in the Hawaiian waters that day. Sandy broke off her engagement to Lynn after returning from Hawaii, but Devereaux's death only brought her closer to Terry, as later that year, Terry lost a child of her own. In August 1979, Terry's 22-year-old son, Kenneth Wilder, fell through a hole in the roof of a commercial building he was helping construct in Grand Prairie and plunged 30 feet onto a concrete floor where he died from a skull fracture. But Sandy herself would not live much longer. That's right. Two months after Devereaux's death, she took out a life insurance policy for $300,000, twice what her state farm agent had recommended, and for those who are wondering, in 2023 dollars, U.S. dollars, it would be $1.2 million. Jesus. She listed Terry as her sole beneficiary, and at the end of 1979, she also transferred the title of her $180,000 North Dallas home, $735,000 U.S. in 2023, to Terry. And then began t- paying Terry rent for the privilege of living in her own home. Oh, my God. It's almost like she was making sure everything was taken care of before she was to leave this world. But more on that 
after the break. Well, you heard the lady. Grab a drink, hit the can, and we'll be right back with more Unconscious Development on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. Uh, Before the break, well, long before that, um, before we got into it, I commented about a dear listener who mentioned that they had not had Slurpees for years, over a decade, and hearing uh, me mention them repeatedly because I've mentioned them repeatedly in this one. Yeah. Um, That they have started going back. And uh, to dear listener Joel, I would like to say to you, I'm sorry and you're welcome. (laughs) I love to see this for Joel. Because if they bring me as much joy. Oh, yeah. I need to believe that. Joel is feeling that joy as well. Of course. Um, I've also inexplicably decided in the first top of the show, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to print off that McDonald's menu and whatever I haven't tried, by the end of 2023, I will have. Why? 2023, year of Mickey D's. Oh, I like that. You're welcome. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sponsor us. <laughs> Anyhow... <laughs> Anyhow, Anyhow, so this journey so far is bananas. Well, buckle in, because when I tell you it gets way wilder, trust me, it gets yeah. way wilder. Oh, I kind of felt like we were were headed up a hill. Yep. And There's I, a reason I, I took this to... I took the break at that point. Let's put it that I way. Bet. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Oh, I can't wait. So uh Lauren, the floor is yours. Thank you kindly. Now before the break, oh. you'll remember I was talking about how Sandy was relinquishing everything. Uh, to Terry, mm. and as though, you know, perhaps she was setting herself up for something. So, on September 8th, 1981, Sandy and her housekeeper, Louise Watson, who you will remember used to care for Devereaux, left for what was to be a six-day trip to Colorado. Sandy wanted to visit the mountain land that Terry and some of the followers of Conscious Development had bought near Cripple Creek, where they planned to build a retreat. Louise, who was 77 years old at the time, said she didn't want to go on the trip, because she hadn't been feeling well, but Sandy persuaded her to come. After renting a station wagon at the Denver airport, the two women spent the night with Terry's sister in Colorado Springs. 
They set out for the conscious development property the next day, and at about 5 p.m., in the area known as the Garden of the Gods, Sandy Cleaver drove straight off a mountain. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yep. I, um, okay. Wow. Gold Camp Road had curved right, but there was an absence of skid marks on the dirt, which led police to conclude that Sandy hadn't veered or even braked. Oh, the my car, God. The car tumbled 500 feet into a ravine. Sandy and Louise were thrown on the way down. Their broken bodies were discovered the next day, well above the car wreck. As she had been after Devereaux's death, Terry was quick to reach the scene. Two days following the accident, she was at the local hospital claiming the bodies. Terry also had Sandy's will, which had conveniently been updated three months earlier, in which she had left everything to Terry. And Louise, always eager to please Sandy, had also signed a will on that same day, also naming Terry as the beneficiary of her estate. Oh, my God. Both women named Terry as executor and asked that their ashes be placed in the still non-existent Conscious Development Learning Center that Devereaux had also apparently requested to leave her trust fund to. Terry cashed the $300,000 insurance check, which, I will remind you, was over $1.2 in current mm. standards, that she received as the beneficiary of Sandy's life insurance policy. Receiving the proceeds of the Cleaver estate would be more difficult. Two months after Sandy's death, her brother, Croom Beatty IV, filed papers contesting Sandy's will. His attorney was a man named James Barklow, who was a former criminal prosecutor. The probate case would initiate what would become a decade-long obsession that he personally had with Terry Hoffman. More on that later. Barklow claimed that Sandy's will resulted from undue influence and fraud. He argued in court documents that Sandy lacked the ability to exercise freely independent thoughts and reasoning because she was controlled by, quote, proponents' use of hypnosis, Pavlovian conditioning, and psychotherapy. In a pretrial deposition, Terry denied controlling Sandy, but did admit attempting hypnosis on her on two occasions. Yep. Huh. The case went to trial in June 1982, and after five days of testimony, Terry decided... She'd settle, rather than await the jury's verdict. She agreed to pay Croom Beatty $112,500 in cash, or around $346,000 in today's standards, and 40% of the net proceeds from the sale of Sandy's home. Sandy's antiques, paintings, and other possessions, basically the rest of her $332,000 estate, which would be over a million dollars in 2023, would be divided equally between them. For Terry... The impact of Sandy's death was devastating. She halted all conscious development classes, and in December 1982, the appearance of an article in D Magazine, prompted by the Sandy Cleaver probate trial, seemed to make it sound like it was an end for the group altogether. The article was titled, True Believers, The Rise and Fall of a North Dallas Cult, and yes, I did obviously consult this article during my research for this episode. Robin Ottstadt was the person who was to fill Sandy Cleaver's shoes after her death. Robin had assumed responsibility for rewriting the Conscious Development Correspondence courses, and when the lawsuit over Sandy's estate came to trial, Robin testified on Terry's behalf. Robin had met Terry in 1974, two years after her divorce. 
a counselor for troubled children, she had written the school system's citizenship curriculum, which was designed to teach responsibility and decision-making to children. Her own life, however, was dominated by Terry's teachings. Terrified of the Black Lords, Robin filled her Lake Highlands home with protective crystals and friendly gnomes, which were obviously doll-like figurines. As a member of the White Brotherhood, she participated in the ritual battles against the forces of evil, and beneath her bed, Robin placed special protective shields that she made out of lengths of copper tubing twisted into strange shapes. But Terry's strangest influence on Robin Ottstadt took another form. Terry played matchmaker between 41-year-old Robin and an invisible CIA agent. By 1986, Robin had a close and intimate relationship with a supernatural patriot named George G. The bizarre love affair is detailed in journals later reviewed by investigators, which Robin kept for years. In the books, Robin describes dates, romantic dinners, heart-to-heart talks, poignant love letters, and even a camping trip that she and George D.G. took to Colorado. Conscious development followers have told investigators that Terry spoke mysteriously of her connections to the CIA. She claimed to have been training dematerialized government agents and was using her powers to protect them. Just as Terry's followers came to believe in masters who no one could see, masters whom they came to regard as being quite real, so did Robin come to have an invisible lover. The couple couldn't get married for reasons of national security, of course. If a I just woman say, can today marry a ghost pirate. Well, <laughs> but are those legally binding marriages? Probably not. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And I want to say, you know, I've tried dating a lot of different types of people over the years, but I got to say invisible dematerialized government agents was a pool that I have not tapped yet. But never say never. Hey, 2023. Wait and see. Wait and see. Maybe he'll rematerialize. By the oh mid-1980s, Robin's absorption with Terry's teachings had distanced her from her parents, and she seemed almost completely invisible to her son, who was then in high school. It was said that her whole life had revolved around him until she met Terry Hoffman, and then her whole life revolved around Terry Hoffman. Uh. That was a quote from a friend. Robin was among the conscious development followers who were buying mountain land in Colorado. She taught frequent consultations with Terry and visited Don Hoffman for body work. But what's bodywork, Lauren, and who's Don Hoffman? Let me tell you. By the mid-1980s, Terry had become an all-purpose guru. In addition to her spiritual counseling and jewelry line, she now also offered her own perfume and acupressure massage therapy, which were basically special rubdowns intended to unclog your body's blocked energy centers. After schooling her fourth husband, Don Hoffman, in the art, she began giving him some of her bodywork clients. She also fancied herself a financial advisor and counseled devotees to change jobs or start their own businesses. She also consulted in the oil business. I'm assuming that means like crude oil, not essential oil. But to be honest, I couldn't get a firm answer on that. Oh, God. At this rate, it could be olive oil. It's probably both. But back to Robin. In late 1986, despite all the therapy, Robin started displaying signs of depression. Her journals suggested that her non-physical, quote, bodies, her astral, mental, and spiritual bodies, in her belief, had turned against her. 
She began writing about her spiritual being as being a separate entity from her. For example, I don't want to work with my soul in the physical, would be something that was pulled from those writings. Next, her bodies went on the attack, apparently assaulting Terry and Robin's closest friend, Tamara or Tammy Taylor. It was seen as being totally beyond Robin's control. It was obviously the work of the Dark Lords, but her conscious development friends did start to abandon her. Tammy wrote to Robin in March 1987, quote, I have made the decision to stop talking with you, and looking back at the numerous things that have befallen me, I was able to determine that on many occasions I had talked to you and given you information, which was then used against me by your other bodies following our phone call. You are facing a very difficult time, but as they consider me an arch enemy, I cannot chance to continue giving you information. I am not going to repeat all the things that I have been going wrong, that I have had been going wrong, as I don't want your bodies to know where they were successful. I hope someone also else, I hope someone else they are not angry with or jealous of will be able to talk and help you now. Love, Tammy. Tammy also sent a copy of that letter, of course, to Terry Hoffman. On Thursday, April 2nd, <laughs> Robin typed Terry a letter requesting aid. She explained that Martin, who Robin believed was Tammy's invisible CIA lover, had threatened Robin's life. So now it turns out Terry's setting up multiple women with invisible CIA boyfriends, apparently. Robin began her letter, quote, This is very private and important. I don't want to talk about this out loud unless we should. Last Tuesday, Martin mentally said if anything happened to Tammy, with my energies, he would kill me. I want to request, if it hasn't already been done, that all ties be cut between me and Tammy and Martin, if you think this would be a good idea. Scribbled at the top of the letter, Robin wrote, Please tell me if this situation happened. It felt very real and it's very serious to me. Five days later, Robin tried pleading with Martin directly in her journal. She wrote, Since you and maybe some others are so set on killing me, I'd like to say a few things. What my bodies have done is terrible. Robin Ottstadt was desperate at this point. She believed the Black Lords were consuming her. Her bodies were running amok. And on April 19th, she called her ex-husband, explaining that she had contracted a terminal case of viral hepatitis. She said she had gotten this from a banana peel. Okay. Alarmed, but puzzled, he insisted his ex-wife go for medical testing and even set up the appointment for her himself. On Tuesday, April 21st, Robin went to that doctor's appointment. Blood tests later showed no sign of hepatitis or any other diseases. Hours after her blood was drawn, Robin went to visit Terry Hoffman. Later that night, Robin Ottstadt, who was 42 years old, went home and shot herself in the mouth with a 38 caliber revolver. Oh my God. There was no formal note, not a single word of farewell to her son, just one cryptic hand-scrawled message to her spiritual advisor that read, I am apologizing to Terry 3,000 times a week on all levels of my being for the highly offensive, rude, and vulgar comments made to her last week. I love her dearly and beg her forgiveness someday. Robin Ottstadt's will, conveniently written two months earlier, left her Colorado land, all her jewelry, Writings and personal files, figurines, clothes, and bedroom furniture to Terry Hoffman. Her son was to have right of refusal on the rest, and anything he didn't want was also to go to Terry. <clears throat> Sorting through Robin's belongings, 
shocked friends discovered an unusual quantity of prescription drugs in her home, as well as needles and syringes. Mm. They came across something else. Robin had attached a white index card to her bathroom mirror, where she would see it every morning and every night. On the card, she wrote a series of affirmations. For example, Draw in light, my light. Sheer will, deny yourself. Bracket, quiet depression. Go forward even if I'm behind now. Get out of bed. Learn whole new way of being. Push through the pain. I didn't do it. Parts of me did. And finally, go forward for Terry, for the masters. I still want to work with the masters. Don't let those assholes get me down. After the settlement of the probate dispute with Sandy Cleaver's brother in 1982, Terry Hoffman reportedly had few, if any, formal classes or meetings again in Dallas, as we know although she allegedly did continue to counsel people individually. That said, there was an effective teacher whose name I couldn't confirm who was touring the country in 1979 and 1980 promoting Terry's teachings through conscious development. Consequently, the group had become quite popular in Chicago. In 1987, Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul, Inc. would also be incorporated in Illinois. A new member of the new conscious development group forming in Chicago at that time was a woman named Mary Levinson. She was described as a talented artist and an animal lover. She also had a family name that would evoke immediate recognition in certain parts of Indiana, as there was a chain of 13 men's clothing stores founded by her grandfather using that name. She was a sufferer of chronic knee pain and was often described as deeply troubled. Mary had made apparently more than half a dozen suicide attempts by taking pills in her lifetime. During later court proceedings, a psychiatrist would describe her as, quote, virtually immobilized by anxiety and tension. Mary became quickly very enthralled with conscious development, and Terry, who by this time was reportedly averse to travel, so only visited Chicago twice prior to, of course, Mary's death. However... Mary and Terry would have weekly Chicago to Dallas phone consultations during which Mary would ask her mother to wait in the lobby of her apartment building because they needed to be incredibly secretive. On November 30th, 1987, Mary Levinson was found deceased in a suburban Chicago motel room. On her nightstand, uh, they found a partially smoked pack of cigarettes, a motel room key, a pen and blank notepad, a glass of Sprite, and almost 100 pills. Mary's autopsy revealed she had overdosed on two types of prescription sleeping pills and also noted a small needle puncture mark on her left wrist. She had left a video for her family in which she mentioned having used her recently cashed $125,000 divorce settlement, which in 2023 would be over $326,000, to, quote, pay off minor debts and make contributions to animal welfare charities. She cashed that settlement just 10 days prior to her death. In the video, Mary further elaborated, quote, I also donated money to institutions, charitable institutions, which I will not name. I don't want any hassle, any trace, any way for you to try and retrieve that money that has been given out of love to them, to the people that really need it. That was my money to do with as I pleased, and that was what I chose to do. I want you to understand that I am fully rational and have come to this decision after a long time of thinking. I'm actually looking forward to it. I am in a great deal of physical pain and emotional pain and have been for about six months now. Obviously, with my past work with animals, I believe in euthanasia for those who are suffering horribly. 
Mary's family later discovered she had been using her mother's charge card to buy more than $3,200 worth of fine jewelry, over $8,300 in 2023. In the time leading up to her suicide, um, that, that was what she was doing. Neither the divorce settlement nor the jewelry were ever accounted for, though. Mary's mother was immediately suspicious that Terry had played too prominent a role, that Terry had played too prominent a role in Mary's final year. Um, Mary had also changed the beneficiary of her life insurance policy to a man named Dr. Larry Keyes, who was a former boyfriend that she met on a retreat with Terry. Her family believes that Mary took extraordinary measures to prevent them from knowing exactly how she got rid of her estate so that they would be unable to contest it. After the death was ruled a suicide, and without any direct evidence of inappropriate donations given to the Conscious Development Group, Mary's family, sadly, had no legal recourse. That same year, family members of English professor and Conscious Development member Charles Southern Jr. discovered him walking aimlessly in the streets of Chicago, speaking incoherently. He was walking around carrying a newspaper, stating, quote, I lived for art. His sister Cheryl says they got him in a car and took him to Michael Reese Hospital for examination, stating that he might be suicidal. He also seemed to be reciting something in a strange language over and over and over again. He was an esteemed professional, also the assistant chairman of the English department at a local junior college. He was also said to be in an ongoing search for spiritual truth. His journey had taken him to India and Africa, and his mother, Ingerbord D. Southern, said that Charles was very interested in Eastern religions and religions in general, as he studied as many different as he could. She felt his curiosity is what got him in trouble in the end. Charles had become an integral part of the Chicago branch of conscious development and was described as rising quickly in the organization. He taught classes, led meditation groups, and even visited Terry Hoffman's home in Dallas. By then, Terry had begun to paint herself as a target of attack by the Dark Lords. And during these special meditation sessions, Terry would use her trusted inner circle to erect the psychic shield around her. Former Conscious Development member Peter Muth said he saw Charles at one of these meetings and had just met him briefly, but the reason it stuck in his mind was because Charles came as a visitor and these meetings were closed, meaning Terry was having psychic surgery at the time to have repair done to, you know, fix the damage the Black Lords had done. And Muth felt that if Charles, or any of them for that matter, were in that room, which was Terry's master bedroom, they would only be there because they were true believers and they believed that she was a godlike figure. After Charles Southern was found by his family wandering, he was hospitalized. According to family members, two members of the Conscious Development Group visited him daily in the hospital while he recovered. His mother also visited him every day and told Charles' sister that whenever she was there and those two members came, his mother would be asked to leave the room and stay out until they left. Just like you'll remember, other people on phone calls had to be completely alone. Upon Charles's release, after five days in hospital, he resumed his normal activities. He remained active in Terry's group, though some say he eventually grew disillusioned with Terry herself. And as 1987 drew to an end, Charles made arrangements for a trip to India during the Christmas break. He talked to his family several times during a few days before his scheduled departure, but his mother said she felt something was wrong. She told him that she was disturbed, that she felt that she should come and see him in Chicago. He said not to. He said he was leaving for India in three days and was perfectly fine, so she didn't go. That was the last time she ever spoke to him. Two weeks passed. Charles' father said he was, of course, curious why they didn't hear from him, but this was the 80s, and he had traveled a lot, so 
they weren't really concerned that he hadn't called until, of course, he was overdue. When he didn't contact them after the two-week trip, his parents drove 300 miles from Cincinnati to Chicago and broke into his home. Charles' passport was found in his home without any recent entry stamps to India. His parents also discovered a vial of a drug similar to the lethal South American poison Kakare. And they had no idea why he had it. Kakare, or the Kakare-like substance, was later identified to be a ganglionic blocker, which is used in anesthesia which causes total muscle paralysis. In order for it to work, it has to be injected, not consumed. Charles' hat and coat were folded inside out and placed on a ceremonial stool. Later, his family would learn that this symbol of the inside-out clothes folded on that ritualistic stool was a Nigerian tribal symbol of death. But did he do it, or did someone else? There were two barely legible notes also found at the residence. They mentioned Terry Hoffman twice and named her executor of his estate. Oh, my God. A legible mm-hmm. portion of one of the notes read, quote, I came under a bad influence and I was trying to fight it myself. Unfortunately, Charles Southern Jr. has never been seen of or heard from again, and his disappearance remains a mystery. Authorities have not officially linked Terry Hoffman or Conscious Development as an organization to the case. However, many believe that his connection to the group could have led to his disappearance. At the time of his disappearance, Terry assured his family she had no idea where he was. Now, I mentioned him before, and we already know it. It's Terry's fourth husband, Don Hoffman. But let's take a step back for a second and find out how he came into Terry's life. Don and his wife, Alice Hoffman, became followers of Conscious Development and Terry in 1974. Don was an electrical engineer by trade and had also served as the president of the congregation at Ascension Lutheran Church. However, after the accidental drowning of their three-year-old young daughter, Don and Alice began to reject conventional religion and became members of Terry's inner circle. In April 1980, Don, Alice, and their two surviving children divorced after 22 years of marriage. Alice then signed a waiver to allow Don to marry Terry without the usual waiting period of the set amount of days. At this point, Terry had divorced her third husband, Ben Johnson, just one month prior. Ah, boy. Afterwards, Alice Hoffman quietly dropped out of conscious development. Wonder why. And Don quit his engineering job because, like Terry's uh, last two husbands, he chose to devote his full energies, of course, to conscious development. Oh my. By 1988, it appears from the diary entries of close followers, who were also later found dead, uh, that Don and Terry were having difficulties. Here is one concerning diary passage. Sunday, June 19th, day of justice for all. Terry comes over and takes a new pill with us. Mm-hmm. Don has lowered her consciousness. God infuriates David, another follower, Over Don's poor treatment of Terry, David asks God to bring justice to Don, not to send bad karma, to send just karma that he deserves. According to reports, Don, at the time, had been suffering from a mysterious assortment of physical ailments, including pain and shortness of breath. And on September 16th, 1988, Don Hoffman checked into a room of the Marriott Hotel in Las Colinas, Texas, where he committed suicide by drug overdose. 
He left a three-page suicide note and three videotaped messages for his loved ones. In the note, Don claimed the following, quote, I have terminal, inoperable cancer, and I refuse to go through chemotherapy just to gain a few more months of living. I really wouldn't be living anyway, just taking too long to die. In the doctor's in the doctors, in the videos, Don claimed to have been told that he had cancer by three different doctors. But his death kind of seemed a little similar to the suicide of Terry's second husband, Glenn Cooley, if you will remember, which was caused by mixed drug uh, intoxication and overdose. And Don Hoffman's autopsy confirmed he absolutely did not have cancer, just like Robin Ottstadt didn't have hepatitis. In a phone call with Don's son, Rick, Terry Hoffman was recorded explaining that a spiritual master in the fear, F, I don't even know, I think it's a fear, I'm going to skip it, in another realm, told her that what, that Don definitely had cancer. He said the Black Lords were trying to create an illusion so that the medical examiner wouldn't find cancer so that then the Black Lords could hurt us all more. Obviously. Of course. Don Hoffman left all of his property to Terry. However, on March 3rd, 1989, his children sued Terry for wrongful death, saying that she used hypnosis to persuade him to kill himself. On March 3rd, 1989, Rick Hoffman and his sister Janet followed, filed a lawsuit against their stepmother Terry. It claimed that Don, Terry had coerced Don through mind control te- techniques as well as hypnosis, behavior modification, information control, and manipulation of emotions. Seven weeks later, they filed a second lawsuit seeking to overturn their father's bequest of everything he owned to Terry. Who got involved? You guessed it, James Barklow, the, the attorney who had battled Terry over Sandy Cleaver's estate. He who's who represented the Hoffman children in this case. While pre-trial arguing dragged on, James Barklow decided to engage in his own form of discovery, going through Terry's trash. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He went through the garbage from Terry's home, which included dozens of needles and syringes, cotton swabs, and this is a quote, enough emptied pill bottles to stock a pharmacy. Oh, boy. Barklow also discovered a letter to Terry from a man named Peter in San Diego. It accompanied a package. It began, here is your bulk order plus the samples. Number one is a new formula that's a bit more complicated and will cost 35 cents more per capsule. It should have more amphetamine and a balancer to neutralize adverse effects. Number two is the basic E formula without the last step performed in purification to remove all amphetamines. The recovered letter and drug paraphernalia prompted the district attorney's office to focus its investigation on the illicit use of drugs. Assistant District Attorney Cecil Emerson, who heads the investiga- headed the investigation, believed that Terry, with the help of friendly physicians, illegally was dispensing pills and giving injections, which Terry called vitamin shots. Remind oh you of God. anybody? A.K.A. Dr. Feelgood? Oh, my God. Which yep. also had amphetamines in them? Yep. Oh. Emerson had noted references in the Goodman's uh, it, the Goodmans, who we're going to get to in a minute, who kept just such extensive journals. There's so much information that these people provided. Anyway, um, there was references in their journals to something called white pills, whose contents remained undetermined. And we know that the deaths of Glenn Cooley and Don Hoffman were both from drug overdoses. 
so there was other reasons for suspicion. In 1986, David Goodman's son, Tony, who acknowledges that he had a long-standing friendship with Terry, was also arrested for possession of ecstasy, also known as MDMA, also, you know, a concoction of many things. Um, He pled guilty and was placed on probation. Another Hoffman follower, who has also revealed that Terry on several occasions gave him injections in his buttocks. And let's not forget Charles Southern had a vial of drugs, and both her second and fourth husbands, obviously, as I've mentioned, committed suicide by ODing on drugs. Also, let's remember that, um, oh God, I'm blanking because I'm just connecting this in the moment. I believe it was Mary Levinson had an injection mark on her left wrist that was found in the autopsy. And I just want to give a, a reminder, which is using amphetamines can lead or worsen depression, lead to or worsen depression and symptoms such as agitation, mood swings, and anxiety. Amphetamines can significantly increase paranoia. For example, you could believe you're being followed, stared at, or talked about when you actually aren't. A high percentage of amphetamine users experience psychotic symptoms, which manifest as auditory, visual, and other types of hallucinations, delusions, and more. So, Terry is attracting people who may have had histories of mental distress and then is telling them to take these mystery drugs that are essentially meth. It could explain a lot of the behavior that we've been learning about here and that we haven't yet because if you think we're even close to being done talking about this case, you're dead, wrong, moving on. (laughs) After working a series of secretarial jobs and having a year-long marriage quickly end in divorce, Dallas resident Jill Bounds went back to school in 1977 and became a psychologist. Described by one of her patients as insightful and balanced, Jill primarily counseled patients who were more interested in personal growth as opposed to those struggling with severe mental illness. Though professional and successful, it has been said that Jill, quote, struggled to find her own meaning. She apparently had a number of chaotic, manipulative relationships with a variety of men throughout her lifetime. Same. (laughs) She also believed in reincarnation and followed a strict macrobiotic diet in an effort to avoid surgical treatment for her uterine fibroids and would also sometimes read tarot cards or draw up astrological charts for some of her clients, and I feel like I get Jill. I was I was <laughs> going to say, I'm, everything you keep adding, yeah. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Wait, how do you get to be linked to her, but I'm linked to the oh. Yahoo at the top of this? Well. Uh, Simply with a bag of worms. The, wait for The it. only way we're linked is a bag of worms, I hope. <laughs> well, and again, wait for it. Um. So Jill's involvement in conscious development dated back to as early as 1973. She was described by a friend as being deeply involved with Terry by 1979, but she did leave the group in December 1982. Uh, She had become convinced after she left that Terry had sent cockroaches to plague her townhouse as a revenge. Uh, Also, after leaving the group, she told numerous people she was afraid of Terry. And on September 20th, 1988, Jill Bounds was attacked and bludgeoned to death in her bed. Oh, my God. A window in her home, one of only three windows that were not seen on her security system, had been left open, and family members claimed that this window could not have been taken out of its frame from the outside without a substantial amount of difficulty and noise. So I can't figure out if this means the window was opened from the inside to imply that the murderer broke in the door and then left out the window, or perhaps someone broke in, opened the window, and then left and came back later through the window. That was a little bit murky, and I couldn't find clarity there. Ultimately, I don't know if it matters. Um, 
After Jill's brutal attack, the murderer flipped through and ripped several pages out of Jill's 1979 journal. But her Cartier watch, her computer, her television, and stereo were all untouched. That being said, gold, gems, and other jewelry were missing along with Jill's gun. The attacker also appeared to have cleaned him or herself or themselves up in the bathroom after the murder as well. Jill's mother also claims to have found an occultic drawing several days after the murder on the ground outside her daughter's bedroom window. Nearby, she said she also discovered a red toy robot that had its legs pulled off and its head crushed in. But that, to me, I'm like, that's hard to know whether that was connected or not. I think an occult symbol feels a little bit more plausible that the sure. robot could have just been a discarded toy. You know? Of course. However, um, obviously, this was extremely concerning to her family. Um, Jill had been visiting Terry for readings earlier that year, uh, the, the same year that uh, – well, it's, it's again, it's hard to see because she, she left – again, the timeline got so muddled with some of these. She left in 82, but she was killed in 88. So, But this is saying that she had gone back to see her in early 88, according to this uh-huh. statement from her family. Again, I'm giving you what I found. Um, and she had – apparently invited people to conscious development meetings, obviously, in the past. She also had made an odd remark to her sister. Uh, sorry, this was one of her, one of Jill's longtime male friends had her alarm code and made an odd remark to Jill's sister after her death saying, um, did you know if she knew that he was the benefici- beneficiary to her life insurance policy, though he wasn't listed in Jill's will and as far as the sister knew, everything was left to the family. So it was weird that he was like, one of her oldest friends was like, hey, do you know if I'm the beneficiary? Yeah, that's weird. The murder of Jill Bounds is still unsolved, though her family does believe that her involvement in conscious development may have led to her murder. And now, I referenced them earlier. David and Glenda Goodman. And when I tell you there is so much information from these people because they kept unbelievable volumes of journals... I am going to try and I have I have tried to get this as succinct as possible. There's sure. so much. Uh, it's fascinating. So David Allen Goodman was a slight mustachioed Southern Methodist University business professor who testified on Terry's behalf at the Cleaver trial. It should be noted that David Goodman was one of four conscious development followers that testified at the trial on behalf of Terry and three of the four of them later went on to kill themselves. David Goodman married his his high school sweetheart Peggy in 1961 when she was a 20-year-old, sorry, he was a 20-year-old scholarship student at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Peggy gave birth to a son eight months later named Rick, and David decided he wouldn't take his parents up on their offer of financial help, so dropped out of college to support his family, taking a job as a computer technician. When he saved enough money, he returned to college, earning a math degree and then an MBA from Berkeley. He had a second son, Tony, born later that year. And in 1967, he took a leave of absence and began work towards a doctorate in management science at Yale. David arrived at SMU as a 29-year-old assistant professor in the fall of 1970. And six months later, on the 10th anniversary of their marriage, Peggy left him. She took the children and drove to New England, and David went through a period of great pain. His personal life didn't heal easily. In 1983, he turned to conscious development after hearing about Terry from a friend. He quickly became a regular at the meditation classes, and soon he was meeting with her for private consultations. By 1979, six years later, according to a financial statement, 
David was spending $150 a month on counseling, which would be $600 a month in 2022, sorry, 2023 numbers. David's family began hearing about Terry in the aftermath of his divorce. He said he didn't know how he could have made it if it hadn't been for Terry, Cold is something his father said. And on a visit to California, David excitedly told his teenage brother that Terry, quote, reads minds, she can see people's auras, and that she was training David. Terry's five-page official biography, distributed to purchasers of Conscious Development's correspondence courses, says she has always felt that the Masters were her real family. Similarly, the members of Terry's inner circle, including David Goodman, would soon come to regard each other as their real family, as Terry encouraged her followers to limit their involvement with anyone else, even relatives. Attachments, as she called them, including wives and children, are the most insidious and deceitful of the destructive passions. That was written in one of her lessons. They leave no time for spiritual devotions. The liberation of your own soul is the one thing for which you are in this world. Followers who stuck by Terry through it all, I'll remind you, the bloodletting, Sandy Cleaver's death, the trial, the bad publicity, at this point, grew closer than ever. And although the group rarely had formal meetings, the members socialized often. They celebrated Halloween and Christmas with parties, and Terry led retreats to Oklahoma and Colorado and presided over lakeside fish fries. She even distributed a list of recommended physicians and craftsmen for the group to patronize. Most of the members dated one another and did help follow, find fellow believers to get jobs. David remarried in 1977 at age 37 to a 23-year-old music student in a ceremony conducted by Terry. She encouraged the union, but sadly the couple separated less than two years later. Half a year after the divorce, David married for a third time. This time, the 39-year-old professor's bride was a 24-year-old former student. Oh, boy. Terry pronounced them soulmates, said they were destined for many lives together, and once again presided over the wedding ceremony. But that marriage only lasted three years. David continued to immerse himself in Terry's teachings on personal development as he grew bored with his work. Between 1975 and 1980, he published only two journal articles and hadn't produced a single book of his own, and the volume he was struggling to compete, titled Inner Power, Discovering Yourself and Manifesting Your Potentials, was well outside his field of expertise. An earthbound version of Terry's teaching, as it was described, the book was published in paperback in 1982, but according to the publisher, it sold just 78 copies nationwide. Oh. Not a success. No. In 1984, David Goodman got married once again to Glenda Francis Carlson Warhide. This time, David truly found his soulmate. Glenda was David's age. How about it? Hey! She'd already been through a marriage of her own and had raised three children. She also shared, of course, a devotion to Terry Hoffman. Oh. Glenda seemed an unlikely candidate for the role of a potential cult disciple. She was the daughter of a North Dallas radiologist and an honor student at Hillcrest High School. She was... She captained the drill team, served as treasurer of the student council, was described as blonde and lovely, and voted homecoming princess for the class of 1959. Wide-eyed and sweet, she earned the title of most considerate. Her married life began in Beaumont, where her husband worked as an engineer for Texaco. Uh, that's her first husband. Nine years and three children later, the marriage ended. In Long Beach, California at that time. Glenda then moved back to Texas, where she took a succession of jobs and made money teaching yoga and reading astrological charts. With help from her parents, she bought a two-bedroom house in University Park. But she did struggle as a single mother. 
Um, She struggled with money. And people described her as being naive, easily influenced. A group of her girlfriends, all single and looking, would visit fortune tellers for fun. But Glenda, they said, took it seriously. She was always looking for easy answers. She was one of those people who never felt well, said a friend. She was always searching for something to make her feel better. Several of her friends already attended Terry's meditation classes, and on the day Glenda went, she was hooked. (sighs) David and Glenda started dating during the summer of 1983, and by early fall, he was begging her to move in. The next summer, they were married, with Terry once again performing that ceremony. Glenda told her parents, who had little patience with her new age passions, that they had been married by a justice of the peace. Terry revealed to the newlyweds that they had been married in previous lifetimes. But Glenda's new life didn't leave a lot of room for her children. Her son had been living with his father, and while her two daughters had been living with her, David was considering those daughters to be a distraction. It was crucial, he felt, that he and Glenda focus exclusively on one another and on their work and on their spiritual development. So when Glenda moved in with David... She took the girls out of the Highland Park school system in mid-semester and sent them to live with their father, who soon was transferred from Houston to Singapore. After that, Glenda and David imposed strict visitation limits. The girls were only to be welcome for two weeks each summer. Oh my God. Glenda's parents were rightfully appalled Her mother, Lorraine, went to church and said she prayed for her daughter. She believed that that's when the daughter she knew, the real Glenda, died. With Glenda at his side, David was moving toward his own interpretation of Terry's teachings and began the process of severing ties with anyone outside of conscious development. Terry's most devoted followers were becoming less interested in collaboration. Ultimately, each of them began to forge their own unique with Terry, or unique relationship with Terry, um, as opposed to the group. The group was starting to splinter, I guess, is a very easier way of saying that. So, Leonard and Alice Goodman went to visit, of course, their son David and his fourth wife, Glenda, in Dallas, and they were very surprised to find how dependent David had become on Terry. He was on the phone to her constantly, even when his parents were in the house. He was seeking her advice before making even completely mundane and trivial decisions. And his mother just couldn't stop herself. He had been depressed back in 1973, and here he was, more than a decade of counseling later, seemingly more dependent than ever. She said, quote, I don't have much respect for people who can't solve their own problems. You're a pretty smart fellow. Why do you have to run to her? David stared at her. She said, he looked like he was in shock as though she had blasphemed, as though she was, as though he was frightened that Terry could hear her say this, even though she wasn't there, and might do something to her because of it. She said, quote, I'd never seen a more frightened look on anyone's face. But David's parents had other reasons to be skeptical of Terry. When David's brother Mark became sick with colitis, Terry announced he was actually suffering from cancer. But don't worry, she cured it. On another occasion, Terry told Alice, David's mother, that she had gallstones. But no doctors were able to actually find any of them. Of course, she had to explain, mere physicians lacked Terry's powers. She could see through my body, said Alice. That's Terry's claim. Glenda, as I said, chronicled all of their spiritual adventures in these journals. The volumes leaving behind make it possible to retrace the steps of their entire journey. And again, like I said, I'm trying to keep this as succinct as possible. So every morning, David and Glenda would awake early to ask God and the masters for the good energies they would need throughout the day. 
That would be the first of several daily meditations, which took place morning, afternoon, and night, and sometimes lasted for hours at a time. They would speak to the heavens out loud, seeking and receiving guidance on all of life's questions, both large and small. Glenda wrote, quote, Our instructions for the past two days or so have come to us as a perception of God's voice speaking from within. She believed that she heard his voice better than David. In June 1988, she wrote, He told us that he speaks to all and gives us advice on a minute-to-minute basis. They had been instructed to yield all the control to God, to include him in every little decision no matter how small, she wrote, and many of his instructions directed specifically that they give earthly gifts to Terry. Mm-hmm. Particularly insightful meditations took place when they took white pills, mysteriously <sighs> unidentified capsules that Terry had given them. Glenda wrote, quote, We're planning a very special surprise for Terry and Dawn. The last time we used the pills, we were given this idea. The masters, Terry especially, gave me the special gift of placing my spirit totally and permanently within my body. At the time, they told David they would give him his spirit totally as soon as he passed his next test regarding money. They instructed David to buy Terry a brand new car, a 1988 Lincoln Continental. We would be told by the masters which dealer specifically to go to. So in order to get his spirit given to him permanently, all he had to do was go and buy a car for Terry. Of course. Which, of course, was a message she received after taking mysterious pills that we know were amphetamines. Mm. So, David was also to pay for the expansion of Glenda's old two-bedroom rental house, which then would become a gift for Terry. David gave Terry a token gift of $5,000 plus more pills on behalf of all mankind in appreciation for all she had done. That's almost $14,000 in 2023. Mm. On another occasion, Glenda wrote, quote, David offers Terry whatever money she needs to be free. She cries. He pledged then to give Terry 50% of everything, to use their word, forevermore. David and Glenda's check registers indicate how seriously they took that commitment. During 1987 and 1988, drawing on the lucrative income from David's new business, they gave more than $110,000 or $276,000 in 2023 to Terry Hoffman. The meditations and gifts yielded a series of revelations. One came on a Sunday at five in the morning. Quote, we're told that we're, we are Adam and Eve. We brought original sin into this creation. And Glenda went on to learn that they had lived, quote, 800,000 previous lives. They were then informed of their new spiritual identities, which were the Roman gods Venus and Jupiter. They were told they were no longer David Goodman, son of Alice and Leonard, um, by the voice of God, that that person was gone because the programming is totally wiped out as transcribed by Glenda. With the aid of Terry, of course, who was considering herself one of the masters, another one of the masters, and white pills, David and Glenda received enticing glimpses of what awaited them beyond the physical realm. Terry and Marcus took Jupiter and Venus by the hand and led us to a beautiful glittering house in the purple realm. It was our house. Terry took us all to the city, to a crystal city, with many large, beautiful buildings. But very few people, most are still down in the lower realms. So... The journals also suggest that Terry was suffering at the time. It was believed that it was doing karma for man because she was unselfishly enduring punishment for the sins of all others, but that it was partly also because of her fourth husband, Don Hoffman. It seems things were starting to get ugly for her, and in the fall of 1988, 
David and Glenda began worrying about negative energies that were draining their powers, slowing their spiritual evolution. The largest sources of negative energy, of course, were their own families. So David started to deal with the problem by sending his parents a letter, which basically said he could no longer communicate with them, that they shouldn't call or write to him because he would never respond. And he also sent a similar letter to his 26-year-old son, Rick, who lived in Boston. But then around Christmas, they went back on that. And David and Glenda exchanged gifts with his parents and then acted as though nothing had happened. But by February, less than two months later, David had once again cut all ties. When his parents asked why, David wrote back that if they would simply trust him, quote, things will improve for all of us much faster. Mm. Rick, his son, wrote a letter back questioning all of this. Glenda returned it, unopened, saying, I knew that under the circumstances it would be filled with a lot of negative energy for David and possibly toward me. She explained in a three-page note that she wrote, quote, I'm not sure exactly what David said in his letter to you, but I think the main thing is that you as well as Tony have been taking energy from him since you were both about two years old and have done this up until the present. We simply cannot afford to lose so much energy to all the family members, his and mine, that have been pulling from us. It's, a, it's impossible to accomplish anything in the physical or to grow at all spiritually if you're continually drained of your good energies and given negative energies in return. Because of the seriousness of this problem, God does not want me or David to communicate with you any further. Glenda did, however, maintain contact with her two daughters throughout the spring. Both of them had become involved in spiritual journeys of their own, trying to talk to God and the masters, also worrying about karma, and of course, taking the white pills supplied by Terry for their meditations. Glenda wrote one of her daughters that her progress was being monitored. She said, quote, Terry asked me how you're doing, and I told her, fine. And she said, yes, I know. She is doing real well. She keeps her eye on you, and she works with you. She'll tell me when it's time for you to take another pill. Mother to daughter. Still, David and Glenda's own quest for spiritual elevation, elevation, elevation was not going smoothly. David was passing test after test by buying all of these gifts, spending all of this money, but still he was not able to attain this mysterious level of power that God, Terry, and the Masters had promised him. These full energies and abilities, the means to see and hear God and the Masters perfectly, and the power, which they knew Terry possessed, to jump between the physical and spiritual realms at her will. Instead, David was sadly ridden with bad karma, which he seemed to feel as both psychic and physical pain. The journal contains references to him being bedridden. He said, quote, God, I don't feel that I can continue. God, are you just going to leave us stranded in this bad state? You've made me a stupid weakling. In early May, Glenda interceded, saying, Marcus, Terry, Christ, please explain to me and give to me the understanding of why you've treated us so cruelly for all these many years, and especially now at the very end. You have to put out the desire for your true energies, came the answer, as Glenda recorded in the journal. I will help you in this if you follow my instructions to the letter, no matter how ridiculous. David believed there was no hope at this point. He said in the journals, there's nothing to live for. There is only a God who tortures us endlessly. On June 12, 1989, David and Glenda purchased a Ruger semi-automatic pistol, a box of shells, and some practice targets from a Dallas weapons shop called Guns, Inc., on God's apparent instructions, they started making pilgrimages to Glenda's parents' farm in Frisco to practice their shooting. The journal entries start to get sad, apparently, at this point, as they were believing that they had been enduring 
mankind's bad karma. Um, God had informed them of this, obviously, uh, and that it was time for them to get their real energies. But of course, there would be one last test. What was that? It was to cut off the last of their relatives completely. So Glenda's mother, who obviously was disapproving of all of this, they said was stealing Glenda's good energies. Um, God had told her that. And that he instructed Glenda to snub her, then tell her off, uh, that Glenda was to deliver all the resentment and hate that she had conjured up inside of her to her, of course, 72-year-old mother at the time. And after that was done, God promised, quote, you can get high and happy. On September 21st, 1989, uh, David and Glenda took Glenda's parents out to dinner <clears throat> at Campisi's restaurant on Markingbird Lane. Uh, there was also a Norwegian woman named Greta who had lived with the Carlsons as an exchange student at Glenda's high school, who had come back for the class's 30th anniversary like reunion, and she was there. Which feels so wild that they're going to this dinner where they're essentially going to tell her parents, like, we no longer want anything to do with you. Yeah, bring the old exchange student along. Why not? Yeah. I mean, who else would you bring? <laughs> Thank you very much. They rode in David's new powder blue Cadillac Seville, which he had bought for $29,000 cash a month earlier. Almost 70000 in 2023. Apparently with plans, you guessed it, to give it to Terry Hoffman. Greta stayed with David and Glenda that night. But in the morning, when Glenda's mother stopped by with a batch of cookies for her to take on her plane back to Norway, she rang the doorbell and no one answered, so she left the cookies on the doorstep. Later that morning, Glenda and David stormed into uh, Glenda's parents' apartment saying, you need to pray for yourself. Glenda told her mother in a rage, stop trying to buy people's love with food, that we don't want anything more to do with you. She indignantly announced to her elderly parents they were draining her of all of her energies. So she went to the door, which David held, and then slammed it in her mother, Lorraine Carlson's face. Glenda's father said, and I quote, they're crazy. I can absolutely be bought with food. Oh, yeah. 100%. Give me love through food. That's all I want. Yeah. Yeah. With the completion of this final task, God announced through the journaling, the way is clear to get high energies. It's like this. You're about to be joined in a marriage between your physical self and your spirit. All is in readiness. The date is set for October 20th. On October 19th, Glenda sent letters to her daughters explaining she would have to end all communication with them. But she did start to write a very different letter to her son, who was attending graduate school in Chicago at the time. She wrote, quote, I am extremely depressed right now and would love to have the nerve to kill myself, but so far I can't get up the gumption. It's hard to know if this was a cry for help because she drew lines through what she had written, crumpled up the sheet of paper, and threw it in the trash. Maybe her hesitation disappeared after she reread the final entry in her journal, which was a warning from God about leeches and meddlers who would try to persuade her that she may never get her energies. It said, quote, the union of your physical and your spirit is imminent. Do not give in to the lies that they spread that you won't get your spirits. They can stop you by destroying your faith. Ignore these negative symptoms. Shower, clean up, walk, etc. Keep your mind busy and most important, deny that you have any interference. Keep faith that you will get your spirit soon. Your consciousness can overcome this if you don't give in. It took five weeks for anyone to notice that David and Glenda Goodman were missing. And then in the days after Thanksgiving 1989, 
an awful smell started to emit from their house. When firemen kicked in the front door, the smell was so bad that two of the firemen retched on the front lawn and then put on gas masks before going into the house. There they were met with black clouds of literally thousands of flies, as well as a floor that was covered with dead flies. It all led like a path to, to the back of the house where David and Glenda, both 48, had converted the garage into a den. One corner of the room was rigged up as a miniature shooting gallery with a metal stand holding a paper target, and two pellet guns were propped against a chest freezer sitting next to it. On the coffee table, in front of the couch, sat a box of Remington high-velocity shells and a manual for a Ruger Mark II semi-automatic pistol. Their bodies lay close together on the carpet in front of the coffee table. The Ruger rested next to David's body. A twenty-two caliber revolver lay beside Glenda. Each of them had been shot once with a gun placed against their skulls. Because the house was locked and nothing was missing, police and medical examiners would conclude that they had covered out, carried out a double death ritual, that they had either shot themselves or shot one another, or one shot the other then committed suicide. I'm surprised that they didn't get into the logistics of that more, but if we've learned anything doing this show, if something's ruled a suicide, they don't really investigate yeah. with a proper medical examination or autopsy, typically. Yeah. There was an alarm clock that sat at their feet. There was no suicide note that could be found among their belongings. They had made no provisions for their two dogs who had been pacing the backyard for weeks. Their handwritten journals left behind a a story that they had planned their deaths for months and that they had obviously pressed pistols to their heads on what they considered to be the direct spoken instructions from God. So did Terry Hoffman in the guise of God give them and these other followers a command to take their own lives? Or did she create an environment where death was insignificant or even simply attractive to them? David's father believes that one word from Terry could have stopped it, but one word from Terry could have also set it off, which I thought was actually quite quite wise. Dallas homicide detective Chuck Hudson who investigated the case before turning it over to the DA, was skeptical about the prospects for charging anyone with murder. He said, quote, if we're ever able to do anything as far as Terry Hoffman, it will surprise me. There were news reports about the Goodman's death and, of course, the patterns of deaths that followed Terry Hoffman, so a criminal investigation was launched by the Dallas District Attorney's Office in January 1990. Assistant District Cecil Emerson stated that it would be difficult to determine if mind control could legally be a contributing factor in a death. Hoffman and Conscious Development, of course, denied any wrongdoing. Terry's lawyer, Fred Time, referred to the investigation as a, quote, witch hunt. And after four years, prosecutors could not find any evidence directly linking Terry Hoffman to these deaths. Terry Hoffman filed for bankruptcy in October 1991, but was then sentenced to 16 months in prison for 10 counts of bankruptcy, sorry, bankruptcy fraud, in May 1994. She was, however, released after serving just one year. Terry later legally married a man named Roger Keenley and changed her name to Terry Lilia Keenley. She started a website where she talked about her experience and talents, and she wrote a financial advice book, which you can still order on Amazon, called The Colors of Money, Finding Your Money Force. Terry Hoffman passed away October 31st, 2015 in Dallas, Texas. She was survived by her daughter, Virginia. Her daughter, Kathy, has allegedly already passed, although I could not find anything about that, as had her son, Kenneth, which we know about from the skull fracture when he was a young man. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Laura Nash.
Oh, <laughs> I, I'm not a religious woman, mm-hmm. but Jesus, what a wild ride, <laughs> right? What a ride. What a ride. Um, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on this, um, but I'm going to need a moment to uh, collect myself so that it's somewhat in order. Uh, so we're going to take one more quick break, grab some water, stretch it out, and we will be right back on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. Now, I don't know a lot about cults. Sure. And I'll be straight up honest. Prior to this, I had not heard of conscious development. Yeah. But... I have a lot of thoughts and feelings. I can't wait. So we are going to just take this as my notes allowed. The Masters. That immediately threw me. I was like, I am uncomfortable. I don't yep. like where this is going. Yep. I just felt like something's not right. Um, but then 12 Wise Spirit Guides, 12 Days of Christmas. Somehow I was okay with that. <laughs> Of Don't know why. Uh, you said uh, she believed she was the reincarnation of St. Teresa. Took me a bit before I realized, oh, I'm thinking Mother Teresa. <laughs> different one. Different, different one. Different Teresas. Yep. Different Teresas. Um, lesson one came in hot. Came in hot? She came in hot right away. I'm, I, I'm just, I am, I mean, I understand there are a lot of people who believe the best in other people. But just the amount of people who are like, yeah, this sounds right. I know. I trust you completely. Like that's, that for me, God, I feel so, I feel so bad for so many people involved. Um, You talking about realms and karma while wearing the most baby doll pink hair feels right. (laughs) It was just a moment of everything kind of coming together. Um, I love it. Every time you said Dark Lords... In my head, I thought of he who should not be named from Harry Potter. Of course. Um, one of the more terrifying things you said was electromagnetic dissolving caves. <laughs> and that sounds like something that Ray Bradbury would write about. Thank you for referencing Ray Bradbury. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 we can't be the only ones who remember Ray Bradbury, right? I hope not. I... I I had to, it was, honestly, he was the first sci-fi person I could think of. I love so that. So I guess that explains my childhood. Well, Does it? I don't know. Um, now, just so I'm clear, did did Terry make up the term Garbin, 
or is gar are garbins something from another thing that she pulled from? Really great question. I probably should have looked into that. I assumed that she made it up because it sounds like someone tried to say garbage bin and it came out garbin, and then she just went, "Yeah, that's what they are." Do you not know what they are? Like that's garbin sounds so made up. I well, the I Urban can't. Dictionary. Oh no! Oh God! Does it's it get sexual? Vile. It's vile. I don't think I can even read that out loud. Oh boy! Yeah, it's bad. Um, oh God! But as far as I can tell from this quick Google, yeah, no, I think she made it up. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, the only thing that I am on board with in this cult, and I like that I'm even saying that at all. Yeah. Is that they were like, you know what we need to do? Dress in robes. Yep. And I'm like, I, I see that. Does that mean I don't need to wear a bra? Can Great it question. be plush? I'm going to say it. I'm going to have to do underwear because I can't take a breeze. Well, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Um, I was deeply bothered by many things, um, but mostly the, the the amount of wills that were all handwritten, um, which, I mean, it has to be witnessed by people for it to be yep. legal, I thought. Oh, yeah. Um, but also the amount that it was, I asked for this not to be contested. It's like, well, that feels, that that feels like you're saying, please know that this is fake. But I don't want you to call it that. Don't call it like, out. That's absolutely what it sounds like. Uh, CD gems. I could just hear that woman in my head talking about uncut gems or whatever she said. You know what I mean? Uncut gems. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I I can't believe she's famous now. Julia Fox. Yeah. There she is. I love that I didn't remember her name. And I was okay with it. Yeah. Uh, Devereaux. Uh, like Blanche, shout out Rue McClenahan and yes. shout out to uh, Susan Harris, who created the Golden Girls. Thank you for that. Uh, 110 pills a day to a five-year-old. Yeah. I, I have a lot of questions. Like, did you grind that up? Did you whatever? I can't even get mine to take a single, like, antibiotic pill or something when they're sick. Yeah, like I, it's that I have a lot of questions about that because we later know that she was definitely buying amphetamines. I'm like, were you right. giving these this child amphetamines? <sighs> it could have been something else. Obviously, we have no way to know, but it yeah, I mean, sure. wild. Well, the fact that she went on to become like an incredible athlete. It's like, <sighs> well, th well, thank God those pills didn't do something worse. I mean, obviously, yeah. worse things happened for her, but like, yes. oh my god. Um I wrote down all caps underlined bag of worms. I do not want to be like Terry Hoffman. <laughs> in my defense, I, that was just a cock up in that episode. Um, I've done them many times. We've all been witness to it. Um, it's, but now I'm starting to think, was it a cock up? Because <laughs> maybe that's the thing. I've I'm never questioning Googled. myself. I, I've never Googled bag of worms. So, well... I guess maybe now's the time. Yep. Um, you said overboard. I wrote down shout out Curtin Goldie. Thank you kindly. Uh, Sandy refused to go to her kids' basketball games. Sandy. One kid 
having basketball games. I have three that over the th- from the three of them, they're on four different teams. And I go to as many of those goddamn games as possible. Sometimes I'm there every week, like every day. Yep. And it's it is what it is. And I'll tell you, I went to one today that was for like grade six to eight level. And it was the most aggressive physically game that I've ever seen. Like a kid, an older kid, like grabbed another one by the throat and threw him to the ground. And his coaches did nothing. Jesus. I know. Is that kid on amphetamines? (laughs) I... I had a lot of questions. That kid was swearing at everybody, swearing at the refs, yelling about things. At one point, he slammed a basketball down on the ground because he got called for a very, if I may, obvious travel. I don't know basketball very well, but even I was like, oh, he's just walking now. I'm like, this isn't right. My point is... To quote all the signs you see uh, in the gyms when you go to basketball, be a fan, not a fanatic. Love that. Calm down. Love that. There were parents yelling at the refs. The refs were teenagers. (laughs) They were boys. Leave them alone. Stop it. They're good boys. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, Devereaux having a will at the age of 14. Stop it. Stop it. And the fact also that Devereaux was known to be an extremely strong swimmer, but yet drowned, feels Mm. off. And the fact that Terry Hoffman had been to that exact spot before, and we know that Sandy did absolutely anything Terry told her to do. Mm. We know that she had hypnotized uh, Sandy on occasions. It just feels really dark and awful. Yes. And Sandy paying to live in her own house. I know. Again, I just... There's just so many things that I'm like, oh, oh, God. You just want to go back in time and be like, here's the deal. She's not for you. Let's get you out of it. Let's get you out of here. Let's get you out of here. Um, I think the most horrifying thing you may have said was Sandy just driving straight off the mountain. I I don't like rides that just drop you. Sure. You know, like, for example, Splash Mountain. I don't believe it's called that anymore. But when you're like at the top and you're turning and you're just going, turns my stomach. What? That poor Louise. I know. That poor Must have gone through in this moment. 77 Um, at the time. Like, my God. And the fact that one of them was named Louise in two women in a car going off a cliff. But that could have been part of it. You don't know. Like, uh, well, I guess the movie hadn't come out at that point, so never mind. I was going to say, it's like, there's just so much, like, I think for me, too, the thing with Louise is, like, she also signed all of her shit over. Like, that's wild. And Louise uh, didn't even want to go. Nope. Not unlike Dante, she did not want to be there, or she was not supposed to be there today. Yep. So it's just thank you. For oh that. God, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel so te- so bad for so many people in this, but like, I think Devereaux and Louise. I, oh, for me, I just I can't. Um, oh God, having a relationship with an invisible CIA agent. I don't think I have more to add there. Yep. Um, the term body work, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with. <laughs> like if, if some 
somebody invited me to their home or even if I if we finish this record and I go across that hall to my bed and my husband wakes up and goes, would you like some body work? I'm going to say hard pass and say, that's the creepiest thing you've ever said. It is. Like, yeah, yeah. It's a body work never works unless you're having your car fixed. True. Your car dents or whatever. But still, uh, not interested. Uh, oh, my God. Thinking she had hepatitis from a banana peel. Oh, God. The levels that Terry took advantage of these people oh, is yeah. so wild to me. They all deserved better, especially Devereaux and Louise. Um, Dr. Larry Keyes sounds absolutely made up. <laughs> <laughs> Great point. Just know Great that. point. Uh, psychic surgery. No. <laughs> Just no. <laughs> I'm putting, I'm putting psychic surgery on the list with aliens that make me go, no, I don't buy it. Yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. Listen, that's where I'm, I'm at. into I'm into the extreme level of woo woo that you can get, and I, even I'm like, I don't think psychic surgery is a thing. Come on. If you'll excuse me, I'm just gonna quickly write down <laughs> level of woo woo. Oh my god, level of woo woo. Um, mm-hmm. That might be one of my favorite things. <laughs> gonna write a timestamp so I remember. Of course. There may or may not be a promo about it next week. You'll find out on the next episode. No, <laughs> you'll find out between now and the next episode. Um, so Charles Southern Jr. going missing. I wrote in all caps, what did you do, Terry? I know. Because there's no way. There's no way he just went off and he's living his best life. Well, and it's also interesting because we know he was very into religions. And then there was this, this yeah. symbol of death, which feels looming. And we also know that so many other people that followed her committed suicide. It just feels like, you know. Yeah. I'm there was also, also concerned about that paralyzing drug that was in his apartment. Yep. How did he get it? And it should also be noted there's an Unsolved Mysteries episode about uh, about him um, that I watched as well. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, I mean, I mean, Unsolved Mysteries is unsettling and best. It's what they do the best. But yeah, it was, it's, sure. just, it's, it's very unsettling, that whole thing. Mm. Uh, also Don Hoffman believing he had cancer three different doctors telling him he did I can't believe that Terry found three different doctors who could be bought how do we know they were actually doctors oh shit you're right <laughs> I love that I oh you naive darling I had not even considered I had not considered that if she put anybody in a set, lab coat, she could. If she's setting people up with invisible dates. Yep. She's also telling people she can see through their bodies. She's also telling people she communicates with God. Like, I think they just, these people just believed her. And I, I, I mean, I, I can be naive at the best of times, but this woman 50% of her husbands died mysteriously in the same way. Yeah. Two out of four. Not That's great. A lot. Not great. That's, those aren't great odds. No. So my question is just, how do you keep letting her do it? I also wish I could see the jewelry. I know. I couldn't was I it, think I could find well, any pictures of it, but it, it wasn't nice enough. Let's put it that way. Like, I just, I want to see 
just how jank town is it? It's you know jank I mean? town, USA, for that's, sure. That's what I uh, that's what I wanted to know. Um, oh God! Oh, she keeps going. Um, Jill being murdered. It's clearly not a robbery if expensive things are kept around. And this is going to sound like I'm giving advice, but I'm not. They ripped out journal pages. Take the whole fucking book. I know. If you rip out the pages, you look suspicious. And you're leading us to the path of, it was obviously Terry. (laughs) Or one of her minions. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Whereas if you take the book, how do we even know she had one? You know, it's just like, to me, it was like, okay. It feels like they were sending a message. Oh, yeah, that is possible. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for the description, uh, quote, mustachioed. (laughs) (laughs) I like that a lot. I also like that I wrote these and am reading them in order of how you did them. So we're just getting the real ride all over again uh, in a shorter way. Yes. Uh, Convincing people to pull away from their family and friends is how toxic, abusive relationships start. Uh, That being said, if your family and friends are toxic to you in any way, you are more than justified in removing them from your life. 100%. And also, FYI, because I I know that I have a... Uh, studied so many cults. Um, of course. It's one of the, like, cornerstones of every cult. Oh, of course. Every single cult is like, unless they're in the cult, they're evil. That's quite common. So again, like, I think at this point, it's safe to say this was a cult. I would consider this a cult, for oh, sure. 100%. Once they start giving, like, writing wills and giving all of their stuff to a single person that they believe is getting messages from other powers. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. I'd say we've stepped into uh, cult-like behavior. Yeah. And it makes sense. Of course they want you separated so that your family can't be like, oh my God, what are you doing? Yeah. And so that they won't notice till it's too late. Um, She could see through my body is probably the creepiest thing. Other than body work? <laughs> other than body work. But that's my own bugaboo. I just don't like those two words put together for some reason. I get that. Um, Also, just a a note to all the single mothers out there. If a man tells you that your children are a distraction and that they need to leave in order for you to be with him, he is not the man for you. I'd say not the man for anybody, but yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And the same goes for single dads. If a lady comes up in there, yep, or a gentleman or a person or whatever your flavor is, yep, and they're like, "Hey, hate the kids, get them out." Yep. That's your moment to go goodbye. You're a horrible person. 100%. Close the door and go live a happy life with your kids. Yes. And find someone who's lovely. Find and someone who's lovely. Hard, but I truly believe uh lovely is out there. Um, and, and finally, I love that I felt the need to write this down. Witch hunt. <laughs> the term witch hunt. Has that ever been used by a person who was actually innocent? No. Besides actual witches? It's inflammatory. Of course not. Because leave the witches alone. The witches have nothing to do with this. No. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Listen, a couple quick things I just wanted to hit on. Yes, My please. question is this. How did Terry get into the drugs? We know that she was this small town housewife. How did that even happen? 
How, how did that connection get made? And I also want to make it clear that, like, hallucinogenics, there's a lot of research that has been done that they are extremely helpful therapeutically. Um, they, can, they can help, you know, all kinds of things. PTSD, anxiety, depression. And I am not suggesting that that isn't great work that people should be doing. But that is with licensed medical professionals that are giving you the, the guidance that you need to use those hallucinogenics in the best way possible. I think that this is based in a similar kind of theory in that you take these drugs and of course you're going to have these amazing visions and all of the above. But again, sure. there's no, this woman has no rhyme or reason to know what she's doing. And she doesn't even know what, she, what she's really getting. And she's giving them out, like, you know, telling people when to pop these pills and when to meditate while taking the pills. And it just feels to me <clears throat> like, and, and Christy mentioned this on the break very briefly, but it's like, my main question is, did she know that she was bullshitting or did she really believe this? And I don't know the answer yeah. to that, but it's oh, amazing I... because she was compared her, her, her image was compared to aunt B from, um, the Andy Griffith show. Like she was this little stout portly woman. She, I mean, she started the whole thing when she was 39 and it went for, you know, so she was getting up to in her fifties by, by the end of it. I just am fascinated by the whole thing. And the, the last thing I wanted to, to hit on very quickly was, was White Brotherhood the name that you thought was the best for your wonderful spiritual crew? Because I'm just going to say you're dipping, you're dipping into other things that I don't think you were yeah. for. I don't know if she was a racist, but to me, every time I heard White Brotherhood, I was just like, isn't there a better name? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you could... I mean, I know they were going trying to go for an opposite of Dark Lord and Black Lord and whatever, but I don't know if any sort of brotherhood would have worked light, white, uh, not dark. Like, I don't think there's anything that would have worked. Well, I, I mean, there there is, of course, maybe they maybe they looked up Aryan Brotherhood and it was taken. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, to me, it's, it's just like, what are you thinking? Like, white brotherhood just sounds so racist. So racist. You, the first moment you said it, I just went, huh, and I yeah. like seized a little and then was like, but that can't be. I and mean, so I much think... of it was about like wizardry and put on your robes yeah. to get 15 times the power and swing your yeah. pen swords. It was like you couldn't just come up with something that was anything else. Yeah. I mean, look, if they're wearing nothing but robes, their pen swords are absolutely swinging. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, uh, I think we just found what we like to call in the biz as the button. There it is. There it is. Which would also be flapping in the breeze if they were only wearing robes. <laughs> um, it's just for me. I need to believe that there was at least maybe a small part of her that believed this. Yeah. Uh, it started so young for her with you know, the masters and whatever. So it feels like, uh, is that something you think you witnessed or are you remembering back thinking you witnessed it because it's something your brain created from a trauma that you're pushing out of your mind? First of all, well done. Second of all, thank you. Uh, yeah, I exactly. learned it from you. Well, thank you very much. But that's the thing. Does she actually have those memories as a child or did she make that up? We don't know, right? Oh, like yeah. it's it's 
I don't trust her as far as I could throw her. And so again, it's like, I just feel like at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's so confounding because again, for people to give everything. And again, the pattern in all of these deaths and disappearances being other than I think one of them, other than Jill, who made, it was Dr. Larry Keyes, I believe that was her beneficiary. But to your point, that sounds like a fake name. That could have been fucking someone to do with, we know that she met him at a retreat with Terry. How do we know that money didn't get to Terry? These were followers oh, would do anything for her. It did. Yeah. Yes. And Dr. Larry Keyes is absolutely the just a guy in a tr- in like a lab coat that she was like, "Here. Uh, you might need a stethoscope. Could you get one?" But here's the other thing. It. How do we even know he was real? People were dating invisible CIA agents. How do we know that these doctors weren't invisible and communicating through Terry? Great point. The layers Great to this point. are wild. It's wild. Yeah. Um, but yeah, heartbreaking. Again, these poor people that, again, put their trust in someone, put their money in someone. I mean, it's always, to me, it's always heartbreaking. Uh, and I have great compassion for anyone who is out trying to seek answers who is someone who's trying to find meaning in life and and inadvertently gets embroiled in one of these situations because it really is preying upon people in such a terrible way. Yes. And good God. Like, I I just, I can't, I can't stand people that take advantage of other people. Yeah. Especially for, like, financial gain. Oh, yeah. But, like, for really any gain of any kind or just to be uh, malicious or whatever, I'm just annoyed by it. And I wish that there was some sort of big comeuppance. I know. And that's the worst part is just the trail of deaths and like a, ah, I'm sure you're fine. Oh, I, I, I don't know if I'd say that about Terry Hoffman. The only thing I would say about Terry Hoffman is um, she was really good at turning a phrase. Bag of worms. Thank you very much. Again, I need to look that up because I am instantly horrified. Uh, Miss Lauren Ash, in a word, riveting. Thank you kindly. So thank you for your research. You always go above and beyond to educate us. And we appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, dear listeners, for taking this wild (laughs) journey with us. Uh, We appreciate your support. As always, give us a follow on the socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails. Or on Twitter, because somehow it still exists, uh, (laughs) at Not Detectives. The joke is, it might not by the time this airs. Uh, And I forgot to mention earlier, uh, this episode was the winner of our November patrons poll. If you're interested in voting in the next poll, or if you're interested in bonus content or monthly live Q&As, check out patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. And if you're looking to snag some official True Crime and Cocktails merch, such as these beautiful, because I think they're still for sale, right? They just, they've been put back in the store. Hey, of course they have. The True Crime and Cocktails Candy Conversation Hearts, which we didn't even plan. We both just happened to choose to wear. Yes. Uh, If you're interested in that, the only place for official, official, that was weird, official merch, truecrewmerch.com. 
I'm a mess. I've barely made it through. Lauren, would you like to tell the people about our next episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Gia Khan. Oh, yeah. That is one I'm currently researching. I'm going to tell you. It's going to get, uh, it's not going to be as wild <laughs> as this, but I don't know if anything is. But I can't wait to do this again all over with you. I especially can't wait to not drive anymore because I am. You did I'm, great. I'm uncomfortable. Well, you always you, do. I'm uncomfortable. I'm less, I'm more comfortable than I was during Carol Baskin. Got it. I also don't know why I had to give her name a little accent. I, I think we know both what, know. I, yeah, that is a great call. Uh, Lauren, would you like to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Uncle Joms. <laughs> <laughs> that, good night to Lauren for that. <laughs> <laughs>